Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Today is Wednesday, June 24th, 2020. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered, breaking news. The three white men who killed Ahmaud Arbery have been indicted by a grand jury. We'll give you the details. We'll also look at some results of some of the primary races. We've been watching Congressional Black Caucus will be adding members to their roles. A Milwaukee police officer responsible for the death of a man there had his first court appearance today. We'll tell you exactly what happened. In Valdosta, Georgia, black man body slammed to the ground by cops. He's suing now for $700,000 for excessive force. Wait until you see this shocking video. Plus, I'll talk with former BET owner and billionaire Bob Johnson. He says black folks need a third independent political party. Really? Also, folks, black men talk about the power of the vote. That's a two-hour special we're doing also with the National Coalition of Black 
civic participation. It's time to bring the funk on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. Georgia grand jury has indicted Travis McMichael, Grant McMichael, and William Bryan on malice and felony murder charges in the February 23rd murder of Ahmaud Arbery. The indictment returned today formally charges each of the three defendants with nine counts, malice murder, felony murder, four counts, aggravated assault, two counts, false imprisonment, and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. We certainly have been covering this story and we'll give you the latest on exactly what happens in that case. Uh, it is uh, not a shock there. Of course, once the Georgia Bureau of Investigation got involved uh, and then led the arrest of those three. Joining me right now is A. Scott Bolden, former chair of National Bar Association Political Action Committee, Robert Portillo, Executive Director, Rainbow Push Coalition, Peachtree Street Project, Lawn Victoria Burke, who writes for NNPA. Uh, Robert, I want to start with you there in Georgia. Again, uh, uh, th this is a stark contrast to those first three district attorneys who pretty much sat on this case. Uh, this, this case has picked up steam since the GBI took it over. Absolutely. And I think what was the most important was that video coming out. Uh, once you started looking into the inconsistencies in the stories of the McMichaels, also the uh, statements from the police officers who responded at the scene, stating that they wanted to arrest them at that time, but the district attorney would not allow them to. Uh, once we found out the information about there being no string of break-ins, um, and also the testimony from the third um, the third co-defendant stating that after the shooting, um, Travis McMichael stood over the body and said uh, a racial slur effing N-word um, to the dead body of uh, Mr. Aubrey. I think with that information uh, being available, that there was no way this was coming back from a grand jury without an indictment. The next steps will be the preliminary hearing in Georgia, uh, but because we have a statewide judicial emergency due to coronavirus, uh, after the preliminary hearing, it's an unknown at this time what the timetable for trial will be. Um, this, of course, uh, Scott, uh, again, uh, is an important case. Bottom line is, once you got it out of the hands of those local DAs who are very close to the McMichaels, you saw how justice should work. Yeah, you certainly did. And the Georgia Bureau of Investigation is one of the best state investigation uh, teams out there, based on my experience. Uh, the indictments were almost presumed, and now that you have them. But look for the defense of these individuals to try to move this case out of their county. It's being prosecuted by another county uh, prosecutor. And so we'll have to stay vigilant uh, my colleague is right. We've got this emergency with COVID, and it looks like we're going to look, be looking at a second round. But at the same time, uh, there's a lot of work to be done if the judiciary is down because of COVID. And look for the pressure to stay on to develop the tightest case, the best case, 
in a case whereby you can pick a fair and impartial juror, jury and uh, bring these convictions in the state of Georgia. So right. we'll have to stay tuned for it. And but this wasn't really a lot of news. This was just confirmation news today. And Lauren, this is exactly what happens when you have a public pressure. Uh, when that video came to light, bottom line is that's what changed this entire story. Uh, and again, action should be taken against those particular uh, police officers because they're, excuse me, those DAs, because their their lack of action was shocking, stunning, and abomination. Oh, it was absolutely ridiculous. As, as Robert already said, the video was everything. Without the video, we wouldn't be sitting here. Without the video, this would not have gone viral. I've known about it. Uh, news organizations would not flooded in and repeated and replayed that video over and over again. So the video was absolutely everything. Uh, absolutely. And so we're seeing more and more of these cases uh, where video plays a critical role in terms of us being able to see uh, what happens. Speaking of that, uh, let's talk about this video. Antonio Smith is suing the city of Valdosta in Georgia due to excessive force claims stemming from a February 8th incident involving the, the Valdosta Police Department. Watch this video. What about, about uh, suspicious act activity, man? Suspicious activity? What? Where? What? Where about? They say, yeah, uh, someone. Do that camera. They told. I told them what I was doing. Oasis signs right here next to the uh, LRA. I told them what I was doing. I was waiting for. I was waiting for my sister, the Western Union, meet somebody. I always go there and get Western Union, and uh, they know me. Hey, you got your ID on you? Yes, I got my ID. What are you guys doing? Uh, while here investigating some suspicious activities, well, I'm not doing anything. I've been around cameras, so I, I haven't been doing nothing. All right. So what were you doing over there at well, the Walgreens? I'm waiting, on, waiting on for Western Union. Call my sister right now. She's huh? in Florida. You have a cell phone call her. Don't call her. Call my sister in Florida. Don't, don't do this. What are you doing? Oh, my God. What are you doing? Put your hands behind your back like you're cold. Put your hands. What are you doing? Oh, Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, please. Put your I hands. Oh, my God. Jesus. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Stop. Oh, my God. 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 <laughs> no, that's why I was trying to. No, because it's two different people. That's why I was trying to figure out if I had missed something. He told him to put his hands behind his back. Because they pointed this guy out too. The people at the store pointed him out also. Okay, folks, when you see the rest of that video, you will actually see the officer who grabbed him uh, from around uh, his waist and body slammed him literally say, what do you mean we got the wrong guy? Did you check his ID? Uh, Scott, watching that whole <laughs> video is crazy. And there was no need for the officer who walks up. What you do is you walk up, you, you listen to the other officer, you figure out what's going on. No, he immediately walks up, grabs the guy, put your hand behind your back, and then puts his arms right and body slams him, breaking uh, the guy's wrist. Uh, unbelievable. That is a video that ought to be used for the text, <laughs> textbook on what not to do in a uh, de-escalation or no-escalation situation. They were questioning him.
There were two people that have been pointed out. This officer that walked up did not confer with the other officers who were simply having a conversation with this gentleman. The gentleman gave him his sister, his ID, gave him his sister's information and said, call my sister. I was waiting for Western Union. They know me. The gentleman that walked up didn't talk to anybody, didn't hear the conversation, then body slams him and puts cuffs on him, breaking his ribs. Are you kidding me? What was, why was any of that necessary? Robert, when you this actually... Was a non-violent, this was a non-violent encounter, and he didn't even have any information. Robert, Completely you, wrong. Robert, you see the full video. They realize, oh, shit, what did we just do? I mean, it's like all the officers, they quickly realize, and there's this look like, what? okay, like, what do we do? Guess what? You're on candid camera. And, you know, they look like some little kids when they broke a toy trying to figure out what to tell their mother. Like, oh, God, we broke this one too uh, too bad. I think he's actually hurt. Uh, and and I, I can't stand the fact that this is what second-class citizenship looks like. This exactly. is the good old-fashioned Nazi Germany, apartheid South Africa, show me your papers, where you're going, what are you doing? It doesn't matter that you're just a American citizen minding your own business, not accused of a crime, um, not in hot pursuit, not posing any violent threat. Uh, all this man was doing was walking down, walking down the street, and within minutes he's surrounded by four white police officers being body slammed to the ground. And guess what? If that risk was not broken, uh, this would just go down as another uh, police interaction. This probably wouldn't have gone into a police report um, because there will be no complaint because so many people in our community are used to excessive force, are used to police brutality. And mm -hmm. uh, it's only now that we're starting to stand up and fight back against it. But Robert, uh, they and, have and a right. They have a right to detain you, to investigate yes. crime. They do. What but does body, body slamming, slamming him and putting him in handcuffs have to do with investigating and detaining him? Absolutely nothing. Well, and in they fact, were completely dead wrong and here. In, and in fact, Lauren, again, the guy goes, okay, there were two people here. This is where you simply do good policing. That is, check his ID. There's another right. guy. You check him, who they're talking about. But this is, Lauren, what people, black people keep talking about. Like, automatically, cops go from zero to 100 and you go immediately to excessive force. And guess who really should be pissed off? If you're white in Valdosta, Georgia, Lauren, you should be mad as hell because you're about to pay some serious money because of these idiotic cops. Exactly. And what they'll do is obviously they'll, they'll have some sort of a payout. This is the reason why we need, uh, I, I think, some national federal standards for police. Uh, as my nephew likes to say, who used to be a police officer in uh, Virginia Beach, uh, you know, every cop is their own police precinct. I mean, everybody can just have their own standards. All these precincts can have their own, all these departments can have their own standards. And obviously there's no set of standards one way or the other that would prevent stupidity, but at least you would have a certain baseline standard for this profession, which of course doesn't exist today. Uh, I, I don't know whether I have to look at the video to, to see if this is true, but it looked like the guy that body slammed him was the sergeant which would be even more frightening, of course, because he would be the highest-ranking officer there. And again, and not only that, this is a huge... This is a, and not, not, not only that, this, this is a huge guy. And so not, I mean, so not only are you body-slamming him, all your weight is also going on top of this guy. Right. And, and it's, right. like that, that, it's like that dude was just waiting to body-slam him. It was kind of like, right. all right. It's like, it's like Robert, he was like, I want to practice my wrestling move right now. I was watching the WWE, and I want to practice it right now.
and and this is what we, we mean by this lack of humanity, this lack of human dis, uh, di, uh, decency, this second-class citizenship that many of us are under, because it's that exact mentality in law enforcement, that I don't need to talk to this person, I don't need to listen to them. First thing first, uh, handcuff them, body slam them in a completely non-violent situation, um, and then we'll talk to them after that. The amount of abuse, the amount of uh, literal and physical terrorism that is exhibited and experienced by African-American people in this country in jails and during police encounters, the only the ones that are on video are the ones that we um, that we really pay attention and know about. But for years, for generations, uh, African American men have been talking about these things. I think it's finally time to bring these to light and start doing real reforms that will help. We got to get rid of sovereign or qualified immunity. That officer needs to pay his bill himself. Go. We got to we, we got to you know, go after his pension fund, go after his retirement, get his house, get his boat, get his kids' college fund, and then he'll think twice about body slamming people. So we need real systemic reforms. Uh, all right, getting, folks. He's got qualified immunity. Well, right? but well, guess what? That it, officer what? will protect himself in qualified immunity. Well, that's why they're about to pay up as well. Folks, let's go to Milwaukee, <laughs> where Michael Mattioli has been charged with first-degree reckless homicide and the death of 25-year-old Joe Acevedo. Mattioli, who was off-duty at the time of the altercation, placed Acevedo in a fatal chokehold. A week later, Acevedo died of his injuries. Ben Crump joined the legal team in representing Joel Acevedo's family. Attorney Crump spoke at the rally that was held outside of the Milwaukee County Courthouse today. Here's what he said. Before I say anything, Attorney Lamar, I want the people to join me in letting the world know why we are here today. And the reason, brothers and sisters, we are here today is because Joel life matters. 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 matters. Because when Attorney Lamar called me, he said, Attorney Crump, this is very similar to the horrific killing of George Floyd. Yes. 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 Pat, here's another case. I'm going to add this to this one here. Uh, this is a tweet. Alvin Cole, a black teenager, was shot five times while fleeing police earlier this year. He was the third person to be killed by the same police officer in five years in Wauwatosa, mm -hmm. Wisconsin. Uh, Lauren, these two particular cases here, one of them a chokehold death. They keep saying release the video. 
There's a reason why police departments don't like releasing the video. But this is also why, and I'm not saying that they are somehow the panacea. This is why body cameras must be completely mandatory on every police officer in this country. Yeah, obviously, when you see the video come out right away, you know that the police think that the video makes them look good. And you know when the video doesn't come out that the video is problematic. Not only does the body cameras need to be mandatory, but it needs to be an act of obstruction of justice if they're turned off or if they're, quote, broken. You know, we already saw the uh, Chicago Police Department has perfected the fine art of always having the body camera off when something happens that turns out to be a police brutality incident. It's just amazing how that happens. But police uh, really occupy, I think, under the law, a special class right now. They can sort of get away with almost anything frankly. And I think that the anticipation moving forward is that they'll, they're going to have that power to do anything they want to anybody, anytime, place. That's what their expectation is. That's what they're going to fight for. That's what they're going to lobby for. And that's exactly what we need to change. Robert, this is, uh, again, one of those cases. You have, the, you have these police officers. In fact, that was one cop uh, in, I forgot what city, who said, I don't care what they say. I am going to keep using a chokehold to save my life. You know what? If that, and I think that person was a police union president. That person should be immediately taken off the streets. Yes, I think what we have to uh, think about is the fact that we still use medieval methods in policing. Um, what other part of American life is actual physical violence part of the job? There is no law that you can break in America where the punishment is a chokehold. There is no uh, law that you can break in America where the punishment is being beaten with a stick by a law enforcement officer. There's no punishment in America or no crime that you can commit where you get shot by a firing squad of officers uh, prior to trial. So if the, if the way that we are arresting people is fundamentally more violent and more destructive than the actual sentence that you get if you are convicted, then we are doing policing wrong. We have to be looking at 21st century methods of policing and not medieval methods. Scott? Yeah, you, you know, this training piece is really important because it seems like the police, the way they're processing their training, this cannot be correct, that in order to get you to comply, whether it's uh, being arrested, handcuffs, resisting, running, or struggling with the police, that they're free to use deadly force. We know under Tennessee v. Garner from 1982, the Supreme Court has said it is illegal and unlawful, a violation of your Fourth Amendment right to shoot a nonviolent fleeing felon, let alone someone you think's committed a misdemeanor. But in every one of these videos you break down, you see the police ultimately using unnecessary force or deadly force just to get their command complied with. That can't be proper training. There's got to be some judgment. And again, I always ask you on this show, who's given these people guns and badges and uniforms with the American flag on their shoulder? we got to stop that before you even get into retraining or community policing or better policing. Absolutely. Speaking of policing, folks, Democrats today in the United States Senate blocked Senator Tim, Tim Scott's police reform bill, he was not too happy. This is what he said on the Senate floor. Here's the truth. In Detroit, Atlanta, Minneapolis, Los Angeles, Philadelphia, all these cities could have banned chokeholds themselves. They could have increased the police reporting themselves. They could have more data information themselves. They could have de-escalation training themselves. They could have duty to intervene themselves. Minneapolis as well. 
All these communities have been run by Democrats for decades. Decades. What is the ROI for the poorest people in this nation? And I don't blame them. I blame an elite political class with billions of dollars to do whatever they want to do and look at the results for the poorest, most vulnerable people in our nation. I'm willing to compete for their vote. Are you? Um, Robert, did he, he somehow forget you have Georgia Republicans who are in control of the state legislature? You have uh, the previous governor of Illinois was Republican. Now you have a Democrat. Uh, I mean, we can go down the line. But he also does he also realize contracts, police contracts that happen? And then who do they typically endorse in races? See, th th this is why, to me, this whole police reform debate is a joke when you want to frame this as a Republican or versus a Democrat deal. No, this is a state of mind in America where we're going to protect police at all costs, regardless of party. Uh, you're correct. And, and what I do think uh, we have to uh, do is fight this on a, a multilateral level. If, it, if there's anything to take from what Tim Scott said, is that, look, on your local level, instead of worrying about what's going on in Washington, D.C., what can you do to get your police department, to get your mayor, to get your city council, your county commission, your alderman, what can you do to get those people who are closest to you electorally to change to change the law, to change the rules, to change the regulations. We saw in Chicago, which is a heavily Democratic city, uh, when uh, Laquan McDonald was killed, we saw the exact same Jim Crow tactics from the police department that you will see in, green, uh, in the darkest part of Mississippi. So let's work on making changes on the local level, and we'll let the national parties work themselves out. But there are things you can do to the city, uh, do to uh, persuade the city council person who lives on your block to make changes that will benefit yourself and your community. But here's a deal. Here's a deal. Here, hold on. Hold on. Here's a deal, Lauren. That at that what you're dealing with here. Democrats blocked it because they said one, you had absolutely no discussion among the Senate Judiciary Committee. You didn't have any debate. You didn't have where typically these bills are worked out in committee. Republicans then complain, well, no, why won't you allow debate on the floor? So essentially, what they wanted the Democrats to do was to. Uh, vote on closure to allow it to move forward and then have a debate. But Democrats are saying, why in the hell will we do that? Because once we get to pass closure, we got no control on what happens after that. Their leverage is on in this vote. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, let's be real. The Republicans are not serious about this issue. Uh, their position effectively is that the police should be able to do whatever they want to whomever they want. The constituencies that Republicans generally represent are not disproportionately impacted by the mistakes that police make. Um, I'm not saying the Democratic Party has been great at figuring that out because they haven't. I mean, we sat there and stopped for 12 years and Hillary Clinton and Schumer said absolutely nothing about that. Obvious Fourth Amendment violation. But at the same time, you know, this irritating annoying talking point that Tim Scott brought out with regard to states, you know, uh, do things to people who are disadvantaged. I mean, come on, man. Really? South Carolina, uh, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana. 
he doesn't really want to play that game. Uh, and the other problem is that Tim Scott, I mean, at some point you got to get real with reality and yourself, regardless of party. And Tim Scott's always going to be caught in this vortex because he understands that racism exists. He understands that there's got to be something that changes, but his party is completely against that. He's trying to thread this needle of being friends with his party and getting something real done on policing and then looking at these videos come out week after week, year after year, decade after decade. You cannot thread that needle. At some point, you have to admit what is true. And he doesn't want to do that. He wants to play this game. Scott, here's and a... Scott, here's a tweet from Chuck Grassley. Go to my iPad. Democrats block opening debate on police reform, preventing chance to offer amendments and publicly negotiate. Senator Tim Scott offered to work with Dems on amendments they say they want, but they said no. Now they demand to negotiate behind closed doors, not how Senate should work. What the hell is he talking about? This is a dude who, who is the Senate Judiciary <laughs> Committee chair. That's exactly how it works. Not only that... This whole deal of like, no, no, we should debate in public. Are you serious? <laughs> it's like, stop. You're not fooling anybody. Mo negotiation in the Senate aren't all on C-SPAN. But guess what? As Senator Kamala Harris said, the Senate Judiciary Committee, that's a public hearing. It's exactly. public. No, they, but they don't, want, they don't want it actually there. And so my deal is this here. If you're actually serious about a bill, why wouldn't you say, Let's negotiate it back and forth and then put it on the floor. Well, because they know that negotiation is going to be a problem for them. They know a public and private negotiation because that bill doesn't go far enough. It doesn't fix the problem. It puts a Band-Aid over it. It doesn't eliminate qualified immunity. It doesn't change the standard from from reasonable force to necessary force. It doesn't go as far as the Democratic version in the House. And that's where you really want to confront the problem. The Republicans aren't serious about this. They know they're politically in trouble. They need those police unions. So it's just not going to work. And when you start the debate that it's Democratic liberals and elitists that are the problem in urban cities, even if though you're in a red state, you're not going to move the ball forward because it's not a red problem or a blue problem, a black problem or a white problem. It's a blue problem. It's a humanity problem that has to stop. And if you talk about it in human terms, you can get to fixing this. If you talk about it in political terms, you're going to only get a political stalemate and all black lives don't matter. Any life doesn't matter when you're putting us at risk of the police. And we're always put at risk when the police engage us as black men and black women. And that's the problem. All right, folks, let's talk about last night, what took place uh, in the election front. Uh, it is too close to call in Kentucky. They're still counting the ballots uh, in the race for the Democratic nomination for the Senate between Amy McGrath and Charles Booker. Uh, again, uh, of course, again, right now, you know, Booker is back down. He, of course, he sued trying to keep the polls open. Uh, there was an, one injunction. They kept them open until 630. But, the, of course, many his supporters believe that uh, having only 200 polling locations, in the entire state actually hurt him. But the big thing that we saw yesterday took place uh, in New York, where long-term Democrat Elliot Engel bounced, crushed by an African-American, Jamil Bowen. We had him on the show, uh, just crushed. Uh, he got, uh, Engel got the support of the Congressional Black Caucus Political Action Committee. But it reminds me of the, the race with Ayanna Presley, when she ran against a long-term incumbent, another white male. She beat him, and the CBC PAC actually backed that incumbent. Also, uh, we see in other races uh, as well, 
uh, where you have uh, another uh, African-American uh, who uh, won a race, Mondrian um, Jones. We also have Richie Torres, uh, who is leading in that particular race over Mike Blake, an African-American. Some 40,000 ballots are still outstanding, and so a lot of different things happening there. Uh, we also, of course, uh, in Virginia, uh, of course, uh, the, Dr. Webb, uh, we had him on the show. He blew away with the Democratic nomination. Democrats could pick up that seat right there. Robert, you talk about, uh, again, a strong showing last night. And it's very interesting. People keep saying, oh, my God, progressives are dominating. But the reality is, is here. It depends on the race that you're running in, where you have some races where Democrats are winning. They are centrist. There's some where you have people who are progressive. That's what you're seeing here, uh, but it's also people who know how to run these local congressional, these congressional races are local. That's what they are. Engel got nabbed, got, got nailed by his opponent by saying, dude, how can you represent a district in New York when you've actually lived in Virginia for 27 years? That was a pow- that was the exact same argument uh, uh, AOC used against Joe Crowley when she beat him. You're absolutely correct. And one of the big things I think what we're seeing is that as the party, uh, the party bosses in the states lose power, uh, what we saw uh, for years were, were um, complicated primary systems inside baseball, uh, state and local parties keep African-American candidates out of races uh, that they had the opportunity to win. Now that those systems are starting to break apart within Democratic primaries and state, uh, state parties, we're seeing more people open up and we're actually seeing a reflection of what the people those districts want instead of what the party bosses want. Um, there was it was less than ten years ago, and uh, right here in Georgia, where it was nearly impossible for a black person to w- run for statewide office without the endorsement of somebody from South Georgia, somebody from Dublin or uh, or Oglethorpe, somewhere like that. We're finally seeing these things open up, and I think it's good for our democracy to have the actual voices of the people heard. But it's not just that. Uh, yeah. Is that it's not just that, Scott? Last night, uh, the t- it's a twenty-four-year-old candidate. Uh, who a Republican uh, who was running to take the seat of Mark Meadows in North Carolina. He had his hand-picked person. In fact, what he did was he resigned uh, at the last second to allow this woman, the only person to actually jump in the race, block others out. She mm-hmm. got crushed by him last night. And Donald Trump backed uh, the, the establishment candidate, this 24-year-old exactly. kid, beat them all, blew them away. Yeah, different dynamic. Uh, This was a young kid. He was physically challenged from an accident, uh, very telegenic, and did not have Trump support, was a Trump supporter, but ran on conservative traditional uh, views and issues on his agenda. Uh, And the voters there said they wanted change. That's interesting to watch because they rejected Trump. Now, they've rejected Trump before, but he's being trounced in the polls over COVID and criminal justice reform or, or COVID and the racial uh, justice issues that he won't respond to. In the Democratic side, something really is happening with Justice Democrats. That's the organization that backed AOC. That's the organization that backed this uh, other gentleman in New York that beat Ingo. They're not only raising money. They pick issues, exploit that issue in the Democratic primary to the opposition in the primary, and then they organize voters and organize the community behind them, whereby they figured out how to win these local races. You see AOC, you see Ingo getting beat. You're going to see that in other parts of the country where they're heavily Democratic uh, centers that they can exploit the incumbency that's been there for 10, 20, 30 years and gotten comfortable with leadership 
but forgotten to be with the people and get organized and campaign uh, in these local elections. We're going to see more of this, I think, because America and these communities are ready for change. And AOC and Justice Democrats provide that change this and make the, them believe again. Lauren, this is real simple. Nobody's guaranteed to a seat. If you want, it, it, look, if you want to maintain your seat, you got to run. Congressman, Congresswoman Yvette Clark, uh, you know, almost got beat two years ago. Look, she, guess what? She, she worked it. Last night, she dispatched uh, the people who are running against her. This is what mm -hmm. happens. This whole idea, if you're a Democrat or Republican, oh my God, how, I mean, Engel, Engel was personally offended that he actually <laughs> had competition. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't care who you are. Let me, let me be real clear, y'all. I don't care who you are. House seats, all House seats are up every two years. Of the 435 members of the House, nobody is guaranteed a seat. You must run, Lauren. Right. Yeah, I think that that's uh, fairly obvious. I mean, I mean, Carolyn Maloney is the other one that's out there that we still don't know the result. I, I do think she's, it matters. She's hanging on by a thread. <clears throat> yeah. It matters who exactly we're talking about. And in the case of New York, you know, where we are, it's very, very much easier in New York for a progressive candidate to win uh, mm -hmm. and challenge a, a long term incumbent. In the case of Joe Crowley and Elliot Engel, that, that was just really easy. Uh, I mean, Elliot Engel, he had as his legal address Potomac, Maryland. He <laughs> just can't get with that. And uh, that's, 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 that's kind of stupid. Who let that happen? That's kind of stupid. <laughs> <laughs> kind of, look, all, 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 I'm, all uh, I'm saying know, is this here. People get, oh people God, get offended. People he, get offended. Know. They get offended, Lauren, when people are running. I'm sorry. You got to run. Okay? And guess what? If you get challenged, state your record, go out there, and you beat them. Or you might lose. But you still have to run. Right. Right. I, 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 like I just you're 20 points down. I, I just don't get this whole how, I just don't get this whole how dare you run against me. Well, well, I think for the Watergate class, which Elliot Engel is probably from the Watergate class, that there's sort of this idea that you came in because of fairly good reasons, obviously, Richard Nixon. But the older members, you know, there's sort of a, there's always been sort of an understood, uh, you know, I don't want to say agreement, it's sort of an understood thing in their head that I'm the incumbent. And so I'm here. But we live in a, a, a political world that's completely different, obviously, right. from the 1970s. So AOC coming in and now Jamal Bowman, I mean, they, they are, it, to me, those were fairly easy races because the people that they beat had just completely checked out of the district. Got it. And in Got the it. case of Yvette Clark, of course, that didn't happen because she's there and her mother has a legacy and, and it's, it's the seat of Shirley Chisholm. It's a little bit easier to hang on to, but it is a seat, seat thing that you don't see very often at all. Bottom line is incumbents, you aren't guaranteed seats. All right, folks, let's talk about uh, this. Uh, I'm going to deal with this, this one issue here uh, that we have been seeing. Over the weekend, protesters brought down two Confederate statues on the grounds of the North Carolina Capitol building in downtown Raleigh. Well, as a result, Governor Roy Cooper ordered the rest of the Confederate statues at the Capitol removed. Well, this week, the state legislature, Republicans put a pause on discussions of funding monuments to African-Americans on the Capitol grounds and another block downtown. Now, this is after a week after $4 million in funding for the proposed monuments passed the Senate easily in a surprise vote. The money was set to be discussed in the House committee, but was pulled from the agenda. 
We're seeing this all around the country. We saw a statue of John Calhoun coming down in South Carolina. We saw what happened uh, in the nation's capital. We're seeing this all around the country where Americans are confronting the images of white supremacy. You have Donald Trump who wants to protect these monuments on federal grounds uh, saying, put those folks in jail uh, and give them long prison time. Isn't it amazing how hyped he is about defending Confederate statues? You have the Confederate flag battle still ongoing in Mississippi where Governor Tate Reeves does not want to really move on that as well. We're seeing this happen and now we're seeing these Republicans and conservatives just so upset and angry. And how dare y'all do this to the statues? But the reality is this. They were domestic terrorists. They were white domestic terrorists and they lost. Please, I want to see any Republican or conservative or Democrat stand up and defend any city in America putting up a monument to any other 9-11 hijackers? Or how about to any of the people who stormed the embassy in Tehran in 1979? How about putting up a monument to Muammar Gaddafi, Libya, responsible for shooting down an airliner? Put that up at a nearby airport. See, that's the same. But for these people who somehow don't understand, African-Americans are not trying to salute statues and flags of people who wanted to keep us enslaved. I don't understand why folks find this hard to comprehend. Could it be that you have folks who think like the woman in Virginia, the state legislator, who actually said they're getting rid of white culture? Could that be the problem? that we have, we have now defined the Confederacy as white culture? Hmm, it's time for some folks to get a grip and those statues must come down. Real quick, uh, real quick thoughts from our panel uh, on the action in North Carolina, suspending the funding for black statues because these other statues came down. Start with you, Scott, Lauren, then in with Robert. Scott, go ahead. Well, they're teeing it up so that they can negotiate to keep some of these statutes and, and to release the $4 million, which is the wrong-headed way to negotiate this because of the white culture. I think you hit it on the head. But the pressure has to stay on. That money's been allocated, and they're going to have to Got release it. it at some point. At least I hope so. But look for them to want to compromise on some of these Confederate statutes who were losers and domestic terrorists. Uh, Lauren. Yeah. Uh, they're making this argument that makes no sense that it's sort of us versus them, white versus black. You take my statue down, I take your statue down, instead right. of looking at the actual individual who's been represented in the statue and what they represented when they were living. That's a conversation they don't want to have and a conversation they would surely lose. So it's sad, you know, it's a sad and pathetic argument to make. Robert? You know, it's really interesting to me the fact that we still live in a country where white supremacy is so entrenched, so uh, fundamental to the fabric of the country, that people think any attack on white supremacy is an attack on America. That if you have any criticism of white supremacy, you therefore somehow don't understand or know or appreciate right. your history. But we have to break that casual connection. All right, folks. Panel, I appreciate it. Scott, Lauren, Robert, coming up next, folks. Bob Johnson, founder of BET, joins us. He says black folks should start a political third party. Okay. We'll discuss next on Roller Martin Unfiltered. <laughs>
You want to support Roller March Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roller Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roller Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to rollermartinunfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. rollermartinunfiltered.com. So a lot of y'all always asking me about terms, some of the pocket squares that I wear. Now, I don't know. Robert don't have one on. Now, I don't particularly like the white pocket squares. I don't like even the silk ones. And so I was reading GQ magazine a number of years ago, and I saw uh, this guy who had this, this pocket square here, and it looks like a flower. Uh, this is called a shibori pocket square. This is how the Japanese manipulate the fabric to create this sort of flower effect. So I'm going to take it out and then place it in my hand so you see what it looks like. And I said, man, this is pretty cool. And so I tracked down, the. it took me a year to find a company that did it. Uh, and so uh, they did these about 47 different colors. And so I love them because, again, as men, we don't have many accessories to wear. So we don't have many options. Uh, and so this is really a pretty cool uh, pocket square. And what I love about this here is you saw uh, when it's uh, in, in the pocket, you know, it gives you that flower effect like that but if I wanted to also unlike other because if I flip it and turn it over it actually gives me a different type of texture and so therefore it gives me a different look so there you go so uh, if you actually want to uh, get one of these shibori pocket squares we have them in 47 different colors all you got to do is go to rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares so it's rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares. All you got to do is go to my website uh, and you can actually uh, get this. Now, for those of you who are members of our Bring the Funk fan club, there's a discount for you to get our pocket squares. That's why you also got to be a part of our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, and so that's what we want you to do. And so it's pretty cool. So if you want to jazz your look up, you can do that. In addition, uh, y'all see me with some of the feather pocket squares. My sister is a designer. She actually makes these. They're all custom made. So when you also go to the website, Site, you can also order one of the customized uh, feather pocket squares uh, right there at rollingsmartin.com forward slash pocket squares. So please do so. And of course, uh, it goes to support the show. And again, if you're a Brenda Funk fan club member, you get a discount. This is why you should join the fan club. All right, all right, folks. Uh, we were uh, we we're, we're set. We had connection with Bob Johnson, and so for some reason, uh, lost connection. So we're trying to get, reach him back. So. Uh, trying to figure out what's going on. Uh, so, uh, guys, let me know uh, in the control room if we got Bob back. Uh, uh, okay, do we have... Do, do we have... Sorry, what did he say? He's not available? Okay, all right. So he said that we were supposed to be on at 6.30, uh, and it wasn't available. Uh, but when, I know when we reached out, I was monitoring this whole deal. We finished that one conversation, and so... Uh, once I got the notice, so, okay. So here's the deal. Okay, so Bob Johnson was on. Um, uh, so, I mean, tell, tell Bob to call back. Tell Bob to call back. We had had, had the connection. Um, and so tell Bob I'm ready to talk to him. He's no longer available tonight. Okay, because he said we're supposed to interview him at 6.30, and we didn't go to him precisely at 6.30. Bob ran a network. Bob know how television goes. Okay, all right, so let me find this video. Okay, so Bob Johnson uh, was on, um, Bob Johnson was on CNBC. He was on CNBC. 
Uh, and he said that he said that black people should be forming um, uh, black people should be forming a independent party. Okay, so what I, I what I was gonna ask Bob is, it's June of 2020. Why is Bob saying this right now? I don't understand why Bob is saying in June 2020 why black people should be forming a, an independent party. But when I thought about it, I went back to December 2nd when I interviewed Bob on TV One. December 2nd, 2016, after Donald Trump won, this is what Bob Johnson said then. The media I'm talking about, uh, I, I mean, it's real. That, that needs to happen. If we, that meeting, I will go to that meeting if it's somebody calls it together, calls the meeting together. What's your, what do you call it? I would call Let's the call meeting it. if the meeting it flies under the banner of what Bill no, that's fine. said. No, 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 that's fine. Here, here, okay, here's the deal. You, so, you and I will call it. Okay. You and I will call it. Okay, call let's, let's call a meeting. We'll figure out um, we can have it at like I say, like when they meet, it's a, it's on a weekend. Look, excellent people come come here for that particular weekend, which lays a path because we have to fund we have to fund our own grassroots. We can't wait every election for the candidate or the party. Can you please fund it? We have to drive our vote. But we first have to have a philosophy and an ideology behind the fundraising. I don't want to raise I mean, I, I raise money a lot of times, yes. but I have an ideology. I want to make more money. So I understand how to raise money. That's not the issue. For here, I want to have an ideology behind why are we raising this money? When yes. I call yes. a donor and say, hey, come to this meeting and we're asking everybody to put up, you know, whatever you can based on whatever you can get right. to raise a, a, a well, you call it a pack, for instance. But it, what is the philosophy of this pack? If they say this pack is no permanent enemies, no permanent friends, right. just permanent interest. I'm, a, I'm all I'm I'm with that. All right. So here's what we do. So you and I will call that. We'll talk. We'll figure out date, meet in place, and and we'll uh, we'll do that. Okay, I'm 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 with it because I believe this is essential to African Americans' right. future in this divided nation. No, I agree. No, I agree. So okay, so here's the issue that I have, and again, I, I wish Bob was on. I would I would tell him, and we're gonna try to book Bob on the show tomorrow. I call Bob's people to actually set that up. It never happened. So I don't understand, you say that four years ago and nothing happens in four years and now all of a sudden you're saying it. I just got an alert where Bob also, I guess, told, gave, gave an interview with Fox News that says BET founder mocks crowds tearing down statues, calls them borderline anarchists in the Fox News interview. So I, I don't, again, so he, let me be real clear. This is the thing that I think is, 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 is I think it's real easy to say that that, oh, we need to have this, who funds it? Who organizes it? Y'all just saw. I say it. Let's call a meeting. I reach out to his people about that, never heard back. So, you know, I'm just saying. To me, you, you, you make this comment now, in June, I've already had some other people who are like, you know, 
I, I, I get I, I, I don't I don't I don't understand I don't understand the call. I really don't. I don't understand the call. I don't understand the timing. I don't. And I'm, I'm and I and that's I'm just trying to understand it. Uh, you know, I folks on YouTube who are saying, you know, Bob is a big Trump supporter. You know, he look, he's talked about the Trump economy and how it's been good for African American stuff along those lines, but that that's the piece there. I mean, because let me just help folks out. Because I, I get this, I, people say this a lot. We need our own party. First of all, if you look back, the last successful, successful third party was the Reform Party. That was funded by Ross Perot. When Ross Perot ran in 1992, the Reform Party was born out of that. And it was disaffected Republicans and disaffected Democrats who formed the Reform Party. There were people who felt that Ross Perot had too much control over the Reform Party. Jesse Ventura became governor of Minnesota as a Reform Party candidate. Now, you have, you, people don't understand, there are other parties out there. In fact, the Libertarian Party, let, let, me, let, me, let me just do this here. And in fact, if you study people, in New York State, there are multiple political parties in New York State that actually have a line on the ballot. See, when we go in and vote, it lists all people who are running for president. There's this belief that it's only two or three people. No, there are tons of people who run for president who actually qualify for the ballot. In fact, um, let me see. How many parties? This, this is just Google. How many parties... are on the ballot in 50 states. Okay, this was what Ballotpedia says. List of political parties in the United States. So they actually have this list on there. Now, here's the deal. This is as of September 2019, go to my iPad. So. It says three minor parties were recognized in more than 10 states as of September 2019. Libertarian Party, 37 states. The Green Party, 26 states. The Constitution Party, 14 states. Although there are dozens of political parties in the United States, only certain parties qualified to have the names of their candidates for office printed on election ballots. In order to qualify for ballot placement, a party must meet certain requirements that vary from state to state. For, for example, in some states, a party must organize around a candidate for a specific office. That candidate must in turn win a percentage of the vote in order for the party to be granted ballot status. In still other states, an aspiring political party must register a certain number of voters. Okay, so, so let me unpack that, okay, for the people out there, what that means. See, so it's real easy to say, we need our own party. But there's no guarantee you're going to be in all 50 states. So really, I think, when you listen to what Bob Johnson said, is that, do you need an entity that is advancing black interests? Well, we have various groups. Poor People's Campaign doing that. 
NAACP, National Urban League, other civil rights groups, those things are all there. I just think that when we start saying stuff like we need our own party, we might want to know exactly what the hell that means. Because it's not as simple as people think. Now, what I argue when Bob was with me in 2016 is that I believe we as African-Americans need to have uh, a significant funding apparatus whose sole job is to drive black voter turnout when it comes to elections. Now, Diddy, when he made his announcement, he's working on this entity that we're going to hold our votes hostage. Y'all saw my video on this show where I described that there has to be an entity that exists 365 days a year that serves not just demanding something of a candidate, but then following up to that particular initiative. So if that's what Bob's talking about, okay. But are you going to fund it? Are you going to contribute five to $10 million to that entity? Are other African-Americans gonna do it? Now that's a thing called the Black Economic Alliance, a group of well-to-do African-Americans who wanted to use their dollars to influence public policy. They actually exist. They've had forms. They had a form that actually aired on BET in June. They've run commercials. They exist. That's an entity. So I want us to understand that there are entities out there who are already doing what Bob is talking about. But when you start saying we need our own political party, y'all, that sounds really great. It's a great statement, but that sucker ain't easy. It ain't easy at all. And I just want us to understand the reality behind it. So we're going to reschedule. We're going to reschedule. Uh, we're going to reschedule um, uh, Bob. And so bottom line is this here. Uh, we'll get him on. He can't come on tomorrow, but we'll reschedule him and then uh, we'll uh, make it happen. So coming up next, folks, we're going to talk about the power of the vote. For the perspective of black men in partnership with the National Coalition of Black Civic Participation, that's coming up next on Roland Martin Unfiltered. You want to support Roland Martin Unfiltered? Be sure to join our Bring the Funk fan club. Every dollar that you give to us supports our daily digital show. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real as Roland Martin Unfiltered. Support the Roland Martin Unfiltered daily digital show by going to RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. Our goal is to get 20,000 of our fans contributing 50 bucks each for the whole year. You can make this possible. RolandMartinUnfiltered.com. So a lot of y'all always asking me about terms, some of the pocket squares that I wear. Now, I don't know. Robert don't have one on. Nope. Now, I don't particularly like the white pocket squares. I don't like even the silk ones. And so I was reading GQ magazine a number of years ago, and I saw uh, this guy who had this, this pocket square here, and it looks like a flower. Uh, this is called a shibori pocket square. This is how the Japanese manipulate the fabric to create this sort of flower effect. So I'm going to take it out and then place it in my hand so you see what it looks like. And I 
I said, man, this is pretty cool. And so I tracked down, the, it took me a year to find a company that did it. Uh, and so uh, they basically about 47 different colors. And so I love them because, again, as men, we don't have many accessories to wear. So we don't have many options. Uh, and so this is really a pretty cool uh, pocket screen. And what I love about this here is you saw uh, when it's uh, in, in the pocket, you know, it gives you that flower effect like that. But if I wanted to also, unlike other, because if I flip it and turn it over, it actually gives me a different type of texture. And so therefore it gives me a different look. So there you go. So uh, if you actually want to uh, get one of these Shibori pocket squares, we have them in 47 different colors. All you got to do is go to rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares. So it's rollingthismartin.com forward slash pocket squares. All you got to do is go to my website uh, and you can actually uh, get this. Now, for those of you who are members of our Bring the Funk fan club, there's a discount for you to get our pocket squares. That's why you also got to be a part of our Bring the Funk fan club. Uh, and so that's what we want you to do. And so it's pretty cool. So if you want to jazz your look up, you can do that. In addition, uh, y'all see me with some of the feather pocket squares. My sister who's a designer. She actually makes these. They're all custom made. So when you also go to the website, you can also order one of the customized uh, feather pocket squares uh, right there at rollingsmartin.com forward slash pocket squares. So please do so. And of course, uh, it goes to support the show. And again, if you're a Brenda Funk fan club member, you get a discount. This is why you should join the fan club. They, of course, uh, have their uh, town hall with uh, young activists, specifically black men. In just a second, we're going to uh, join them. Uh, I'll be moderating this conversation. Uh, the folks are going to be on the panel. Uh, just pull up the graphic. Just kill the audio, please. Uh, Jared Sawyer, he is the Black Youth Vote Georgia Coordinator with the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda. Uh, Sean Dove is Chief Executive Officer for Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Diallo Brooks is a board member, National Coalition on Black Civic Participation uh, and Director of Outreach Partner Engagement for People for the American Way. Reverend Tony Lee is a board member of the coalition, also Pastor Community Hope Church, Temple Hills, Maryland. Dwayne Carl Crawford uh, is an advisory board member, Executive Director of National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. Sean Preston, State Coordinator, Michigan Black Youth Vote, Tony Lewis Jr., author and activist, and my son, of course, uh, New York General Raptivist, co-founder, Until Freedom. And so uh, we're going to uh, go. All right, folks, let me know when we have them ready to go live. So they have a, so let's hit it there. They have a DJ playing right now. Uh, and so, yes, Henry, really. All right, so what they have, got, they got a DJ going, so uh, that's where we saw. I've introduced uh, all the panel there, uh, and of course, we're talking about the impact of Black Lives Matter movement in the lives of black men and boys. So we're ready to go. Folks, let me know. Have they, have they pulled their panelists up? There we go. Gentlemen, how we doing? Can all of y'all hear me? All right, let's do this here. Let's kill the DJ music. I need to hear you. Okay, so let's do this here. Q 
kill the DJ music on y'all in on the Zoom. And then let's go to the panel. Kill the DJ music, guys. We're live. We're live. Henry, hey, 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 Henry, Henry, I need you to breathe. Calm down. You're yelling. I can't hear anything in here. So we're on. So to the panel, I've already. To the panel, I see you, my son, there. To the panel, I introduce all of you already. I see you, Lon Walls, there as well. Uh, and so I see the various folks uh, uh, who are on. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll start with uh, Melanie. You're with the coalition. So please explain uh, the very specific uh, plans when it comes to uh, reaching black men for the election. Um, uh, Lon is, uh, hi, Roland. How are you? Great. Um, Lon Walls is going to open us up. Yep. All right. Thank you, Melanie. I'm Lon Walls, lead communications consultant for the National Coalition on Black Pacific Participation and founder of Walls Communications. On behalf of the National Coalition and Black Youth Vote, I want to welcome everyone to tonight's virtual town hall uh, with the theme, Brothers, Can We Talk? But before we get started, I want to give a shout out to DJ Hollywood Red for getting us started on, with his music. Uh, got us into the mood and let's kind of go from there. During the past few weeks, he's been busy uh, on Black Lives Matter Plaza here in D.C., providing inspiration to protesters and those who want to make a change. And with that, that brings us to tonight's town hall, an examination and discussion of the Black Lives Matter movement and how it impacts the lives of Black men specifically. Black men, the phrase, I can't breathe, does more than just apply to a treatment by the police. It resonates throughout our daily lives with the jobs we can't get, the promotions that never come, the healthcare system that's failed us, and simply trying to survive financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Nice town hall alone won't solve all those problems, but of course we can put those issues on the table so they can be discussed. And trying to address these problems through civic engagement is what the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation has been doing for almost 40 years. The person who's been leading that charge has been Melanie Campbell, the organization's president and CEO. Uh, uh, hold, on, hold on one second, folks. Uh, you actually, can you mute? Because uh, we're actually, I'm getting the sound for a number of them and we can, and your sound is not coming through clear. So folks, if you can actually mute your microphones. Long, go ahead and finish, please. Okay, and, and trying to address these problems through civic engagement, exactly what the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation does and has been doing for 40 years. The person who's been leading that charge is Melanie Campbell, the organization's CEO and president. Uh, she's truly been a tireless and fearless leader for all of us. Allow me to introduce Melanie Campbell to offer her thoughts about tonight's theme and introduce our moderator. Melanie, the screen is yours. Hello, hi. Thanks, Lon. Thanks, Roland, for partnering with uh, Roland Martin and Phil and all of you all, uh, our brothers. I, I, I would spend the time if I started talking individually. Thank everyone on this um, uh, discussion. Um, that you know, it's something that uh, that we know at the National Coalition. We do a lot of work around what focus on Black women and girls. We do a, a, a big focus around voting. Uh, and things like that, but we thought it was really, really important that we, uh, as an organization, focus in on uh, lifting up uh, our brothers, you, our brothers, and those who are watching um, in this moment. It is, a, it is a, I believe, a transformational moment. And each of you are already doing, doing the good works uh, from your various purchases. And so this is the start of a conversation. Obviously, with so many of you all on the call, it will be a long conversation, but it will be a start of something that we want to, uh, as at the organization, to take, uh, listen, 
and then build on this for future, not just conversations, but future ways that we can work together collectively to, to bring about the, the, uh, the transformational change. We, need. we know that we are in a moment with the, with the uh, Black Lives Matter movement uh, that in many ways is very, very, very organic, led by our young people. And there's not a movement that has ever been successful without that. And so I'm going to turn it over and uh, thank everybody for being on here and another panel that will be on later uh, and know that uh, the National Coalition uh, wants to be a part of the solution with you. Uh, and thank you for your leadership. And let's get this conversation started, Roman. First thank of, you again. All right. First and foremost, folks, we had a conversation last week with members of Alpha Phi Alpha, uh, then also Philip Agnew and his initiative as well. Uh, and the reality is so much energy is around black women, black women, black women. So I'm very curious to know, Sean, what, what are you hearing uh, out there when you are talking with black men? Do they feel as if they're being paid attention to, that the issues they care about are being addressed? So uh, thanks, Roland, for that question. And I uh, just got to lift up Melanie uh, for uh, just bringing this together uh, because uh, as black men, uh, where would we be without black women? And uh, in my network, uh, I am hearing that, you know, black men are united. Uh, I lead the national campaign for black male achievement. And for the last dozen years, there has been a growing movement around focusing on the issues of uh, black men and, and boys. And I just think that we are at a place now when we uh, think of the Black Lives Matter movement where we have to decide is this going to be different? Because quite frankly, there has been a part of me initially when I was like, here we go again. Uh, I could just send some of the same messages and tweets from five years ago uh, with Freddie Gray and the uprising in Baltimore. Uh, but what I am feeling and what I am healing, uh, healing is, a, uh, is, 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 is an important uh, slip of the tongue because uh, the whole issue of uh, wellness and therapy with black men, I think has been elevated in this moment, first in the pandemic and us being saying it's okay as black men to uh, say that we need help, that we need to ask uh, uh, for help. But um, I really think that this is a transcendent moment and uh, I am hearing that from uh, my network. I believe, uh, Roland, that what Emmett Till meant for the ignition of the civil rights movement and his murder in 1955, the murder of George Floyd, uh, coupled with so many other murders around this time, but specifically George Floyd, is the ignition of, I think, a modern day uh, 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 Black Lives Matter movement. And we're about to see a decade of change and disruption, uh, unrest, uh, like we saw in the 60s. And so uh, there is a, a excitement and still there is some skepticism. Like, uh, where do we as black men wind up after all the fanfare and all of the attention around this issue fades away? Tony Lewis Jr., when we, again, when we look at the issues that black men say they're not being addressed from your perspective. What are those? What should be talked about? Police, I get, I get, I get police reform. That's one thing, but what else? Yeah, I think um, we definitely have to look past uh, police reform. I think uh, we won't have social justice until we have economic justice. And uh, so much of that, um, unfortunately, uh, we talk a lot about how disproportionately black men have been impacted by criminal justice system and how that has uh, 
created great challenges for us to really ascend and be able to be economically safe. Um, and our communities continue to deal with public safety. And um, I think so. So with that, I think black men want to be acknowledged. Black men want access. They want opportunity. Black men want to be able to uh, speak for themselves. They want to be able to be included, particularly black men from the most impoverished communities, black men that have had challenges in their lives. Um, you know, my work in reentry have, has taught me that that so many of them want to be able to come back and, and truly, uh, you know, take care of their families and, and protect their communities. But they can't do that when they can't get a job or they, they can't live where they want to live. So all of those things are super important. So I think as this, this energy around the Black Lives Matter movement really has to be uh, hyper-focused in how do we create economic justice when uh, all these philanthropic organizations are looking to give to causes that we have to ensure that that, that funding, that money re reaches the people that need it the most. Um, and we have to empower those that are really more likely to have police involvement, even on the police reform front. It needs to be people that grew up in communities where you, did, you, had, you had daily, multiple interactions with policemen, daily um, to really help the police get to the point where they need to be to, to serve and protect our communities. That can't come from people that's just simply talking about being pulled over by the police. And so, and that's not a shot at those folks. I'm just simply saying that I feel like a lot of black men feel like our voices, particularly black men from impoverished communities, black men that have been um, formerly incarcerated, uh, black men who may not have went to college, they feel like their voices aren't necessarily at those tables. So I hope that moving forward, we can be uh, more inclusive about the black experience and uh, get sort of those issues to the front uh, so that they can be addressed. Because I feel like those are the people that really can speak with the most uh, expertise when it comes to police reform and really what black people need in this country. My son, how to, from your perspective, what messaging should be taking place when it comes to um, getting black men, I mean, not just to, to register and to vote. What, what should be said, and not just from politicians, but also from grassroots groups, civil rights groups, others? Well, I think in order to get black men involved in voting, you have to talk about things that actually directly impact. You know, you have to, like Tony Lewis said, you can't keep having conversations about us without us. And those who are directly impacted really are the ones who are going to be the solution. A lot of our black males are... You know, when we look at education, education is failing black males. You know, I'm being being an educator, I actually teach at forums with um, educators, with principals, with teachers, and they don't even identify how to keep the young black man in school. You know, they, they have they have not come up, they have not come up with curriculums, they not come up with teaching styles that really adhere to the what the black man needs. So we have to we have to really be be intentional these days. We, we're having conversations and we say, oh, just vote. But you're not talking about things that they really want. Black man wants to be able to provide for his family. He wants to feel, you know, black man, we don't we don't want masculinity to be targeted all the time. I'm, I'm, I'm part of organizations where my sisters are my leaders. You know, um, um, the Until Freedom is, I'm one of the co-founders where Tamika Mallory is the leader. Linda Sarsour is our leader. And I have no problem following my sisters, because they are built to lead. They are the mothers of the civilization. But there has to be space to where it doesn't it doesn't make us feel as if we can't speak, if we speak too loud, that there's that we're saying something wrong. You know, we there's too much aggression. There has to be, we have to fit what the black man encompasses. 
You know, so when we talk about laws and voting, we have to we have to talk about things that specifically are directed to black males. You know, we we we're into certain things that I don't think this culture or the what the what they're talking about as far as voting is even focusing on. We're so far like our kids need to be educated a certain way. We need to be educated educated accord according to what it is that we love. You know, I tell teachers all the time. Black males, as a young black male, I wasn't interested in sitting in the, in the room while you just put something on the board. We were interactive learners. We were, you know, we learned off being interactive. So we have to start building curriculums. We have to start figuring out how do we build schools and we how do we build around curriculums that in, in empower black men, that make black men want to be involved? How do we have jobs that not just only make a black man make a little bit of money, but he's an entrepreneur. He's, he's able to sustain and be uh, somebody who's actual contributing member of his family. You know, right now, I, I love our sisters. Our sisters are graduating at higher rates than us. And, and it's beautiful because they are the mothers of civilization. But at the end of the day, we have to focus on why these things aren't happening for black men and then focus on what do we do to make sure that they do happen for black men. This is, uh, and again, uh, I, I, when we talk about issues, we talk about what should they be. Dwayne, again, what are they? If, 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 you're out there, if you're out there speaking to a brother, whether he's young, middle age, or old, what are the issues? Well, I think, one, we as black men have no time for it. I call separating the sheep. I'm 55 years old. I want the best for my 10-year-old, my 18-year-old, my 30-year-old, 40-year-old. My time is wrapping up. And I think we've got to figure out, I told my son this, and maybe one day my grandson that we've got to figure out not what's left in my life, but how do we give them every possible chance? And I think it starts with one listening. I don't at, at 55 uh, even think I know what an 18-year-old is thinking, but I can definitely listen and be honest. And I think part of this thing about being honest, it isn't about you telling a young person what your life was. It's about being honest about what went well, what didn't go well, and what you want to tell that young brother to give him the best shot. So many times we get in these conversations about elevating ourselves. It doesn't matter what D did. Don't matter at this point. What matters is listening and do everything possible to get my resources, my circle of influence given to that young man, those young men. You know, I, to me, I know it's easy for us to say, oh, that's gone bad. I'm proud of our brothers. I'm from North Philly. I'm seeing brothers that take a lot more responsibility at an earlier age than I did. But I think also I got to stand to the side and say what? Brother, listen, I'll listen to you, and you can have my platform. But this is a time about elevating and educating and empowering, but also being honest of what it means to be a man, what's expected of them, but also what our shortcomings were. The um, to Reverend Tony Lee, uh, your perspective. Well, so, and I think that also, though, that we do have to deal with uh, that there are some institutional pieces or this institutional racism, systemic racism um, from a faith perspective, or you call it um, wickedness in high places that we also have to deal with. And so we're dealing with issues of poverty, um, health disparities, uh, food insecurity, um, a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, and there's a need to be able uh, uh, to navigate uh, how these institutional issues impact the daily lives of our brothers, um, how 
um, how the system is rigged in such a way, whether it's the school to prison pipeline, whether it is issues around policing, et cetera, how that impacts daily lives. And if we don't hit that, then folks won't see how it's relevant to them. Um, but And then they won't understand fully the need to deal with the policy stuff, the institutional stuff, and the voting stuff. But we have to be able to make the connection between a lot of these systemic things and understand that you don't change, that you don't, you don't beat down systemic racism uh, without a systemic response. Protest is a piece of that systemic response. And so systemized protest, but also with protest are some other things that we have to do to be able to grab a hold of and deal with systems and institutions um, that have been, that at the end of the day, it's white supremacy, it's white supremacist thought, uh, um, and, 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 and it is systemic, endemic racism uh, that we have to deal with that is seeped into the systems of this nation. Jarrett? Yes, uh, I actually echo the sentiments of uh, everyone who's, who's spoken already. And um, I, I believe that black men comprehensively just want security. Um, you know, young black men, especially moving from adolescence into young adulthood, want social security. And uh, when I say social security, I'm not talking about the government system or the benefits or anything in, into that nature. But the actual state of being secure and feeling secure. If you are, just, just Jared, about, one second. One second, Jared. If you have, if you have, hold on, Jared. If you got your microphone open, people just mute it. Uh, that way I'm not getting the feedback uh, for someone. Jared, keep your microphone open. The rest of this panelists, please close your microphones. Jared, go right ahead. Oh, yes. So when, when we talk about the state of, of being secure, you know, we're talking about freedom. Um, you know, the, the, the freedom that black men want to feel, freedom from danger, uh, safety, freedom from fear or anxiety, freedom from the prospect of being laid off from their job. Uh, so we're talking about job security. Black men want um, an equitable chance at um, life and at living. And um, so I echo the sentiments of everyone who's spoken, um, but, but I, I believe that comprehensively, uh, and I can only speak uh, on, on the behalf of the young black male community, uh, that young black men, uh, especially moving from adolescence into young adulthood, want social security, the state of being free. Uh, Diallo, uh, your perspective on the first question. Yeah, I kind of want to go back to something that uh, Tony Lewis uh, mentioned, too, is, is I really think that black men also want to be seen um, and have a space to be seen and heard. Um, that their voices are able to be elevated in the conversations about what's happening to them in their communities. And I think what we have to do is we have to work collectively um, and understand that we have to really begin a process of, of bringing our community together. Because oftentimes we have these conversations, they're, they're very isolating. And so it was mentioned about how successful Black women are, but a lot of times in a lot of the conversations I see, um, it's pitting Black men against Black women instead of really what we need to do to heal the Black community in a way that we all can rise together, we can all work uh, collectively uh, to liberate ourselves from these systems of oppression. Um, and what we need to do is we also need to make sure that as we're having these conversations, those that are most marginalized among us um, need to have spaces where their voices are heard, um, the, the struggles that they have are heard, um, that they can be seen. Because oftentimes as Black men, um, a lot of us walk through spaces and we're seen in a way that's demonized. Um, and it starts from from birth through adolescence, and, and that you know that that's part of the history of this country. Um, when we get into policing and Black Lives Matter and all that kind of stuff, 
these systems have been in place to demonize black men and the black community as a whole um, in ways that have marginalized us and make us less than human um, in public spaces. And so as we start to elevate, listen to the voices of those that have been most impacted and develop strategies with folks, uh, not for folks, in ways that we can create meaningful change and really elevate, ed educate, uh, but also listen. Um, a lot of times we get in these spaces and we, we do a lot of talking, um, but we don't do a lot of listening to our brothers that are, that are struggling every single day uh, trying to make it in this world. And so we have to break down these barriers that exist. We have to have, have black men also understand that we're part of a larger community. We have to see, have the larger community see us as, a, as part of that community as well, as an integral part of, of blackness in, the, in this country and in the world. And so as we start to elevate our thinking, um, develop strategies and not necessarily look to others to do for us, um, but also really look at what we can do um, strategically working together, having the conversations, um, elevating best practices. Um, there's things that we know. Um, I think all of the panels of, panelists have listed out things that we know, um, but how do we execute that? And I think black men will engage when they see a real game plan, that it's not just a rhetoric that's happening out there, that we have a game plan of really systematically changing and elevating and they can see themselves um, we can see ourselves um, in the success and the change and, and the future uh, as we move forward. But I think one of the things that we also have to come to grips with is that every brother is not struggling. Every brother is not in the same situation. I think part of the problem when we have these conversations uh, is that everyone is not going to be at the, same, at the same place. And so the reality is you have to have different ways to connect with different black men at different stages. Your conversation with a brother who's in college is different from a brother who's in high, who graduated from high school, is different from a brother who owns his business, is different from one who's actually working or who's not working. Uh, and so you gotta look at it that way. Uh, who wants to jump, who wants to uh, uh, speak on that? How you, you, you can't just approach this because if, if the dialogue is solely about police reform, there may be somebody who says, that ain't my main thing. I think, I think for me, Roland, I think that's 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 exactly the problem. And I think we we all we say that we're not a you know that black men and black people are not a monolith, and that's a very true statement. But there has to be, like you said, there has to be a connection point. As I'm walking, some they're marching down the block. I'm in Kentucky right now, so they're having a march right by the car. So you might hear that. We got you. But, it's all good. But um, that is that is an issue, and we have to find one entry one point that we all connect on and we understand that whether you're black and you have more and prison reform is not yours equity is something that we all need i don't care if if you even if you're one of the richest black men in america you realize that there's a ceiling that other that your white counterpart reaches that you're not able to reach because you're a black man if you even if you're a basketball player, if you and you're the best basketball player you realize like lebron realized they still going to write nigga on your, your 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 fence, you know these are things that don't matter what your circumstances, what your financial circumstances are. These things are going to always happen. So I think we have to connect on the fact that whatever level you are as a black man, there is something that is holding you back. There is white supremacy holding you back at some level. No matter what it is that you're doing, and we have to connect because we have to understand 
especially those who are at the highest. You have to understand that the higher you are, the, the you can't get higher than the lowest person that's a, attached to you. And that's the reality. So we have to figure out, we have to acknowledge that prison reform means that blacks who are being incarcerated at a higher level, it could be you tomorrow. It could be your cousin tomorrow. It could be your son tomorrow because it's blacks. It doesn't say rich blacks. It doesn't say poor blacks. It's saying that black people are being incarcerated. At- hey, yo, 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 yo. What's going on, brother? Okay, okay. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. We get out my car, bro. Get- Close the door, bro. Boy, try to jump into the car. And it, and, and it happened to be a Caucasian that tried to get into my car because I'm in the back seat. And I was talking about this conversation. He was actually trying to drive off. Lord have mercy. But, uh, drive, dr- driving, Mr. My Son? Yes. <laughs> man, man tried to drive with my car. I, y'all almost seen a whole nother My Son. I'm glad <laughs> that, that didn't even happen to like that. We got you. But anyway, what I was saying is we just have to, as black men, we have to understand that we can only go as high as the lowest level that we are. And we have to intersect on that point. It's not about what you have or what you don't have. We just have to acknowledge that the color of your skin and the fact that you're a black male can put you at liberty and put you in at in jeopardy at any given time. And when we realize that, until we don't have to, let's not wait until it actually happens because it always happens. You know, we've watched, our, we watch our b- biggest stars and our richer people at some point get to that point where they realize that white supremacy is real, you know? So what we have to do is acknowledge that and take that and move forward. Uh, Sean, uh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, who, who uh, go, go right ahead. Who wants to uh, take that? Because the, the reason I posed that question, the reason I posed it, the Trump administration is very specific. They've said they are targeting black men. They, they know they're not going to get black women's vote. And they are specifically targeting black men with the First Step Act and his economic policies. There's a reason why they're doing that. Go, who, who, who's jumping in? Go ahead. Yeah, I just want to echo what you just said earlier. Uh, this issue of equity is real. Whether you got money, got don't have money, at the end of the day here, it's the least of us. As I said earlier, at a certain point in your life, it comes full circle. And you realize that your sons and your cousins and your brother, et cetera, et cetera, it's big circle. We've got to dig it and say, who's the least of us? And this issue of equity is real. You can ask anyone that's talking right now as part of this panel has had a serious inequity that occurred in their life. What you doing, man? them to have to take a what serious... Guys, uh, be sure to uh, mute the other microphones, please. And then uh, go right ahead. You better be tripping, man. You I just want to echo that and say, I think this equity part we should be delving into. But we all got an example of a significant inequity that affected the trajectory of our life and then our loved ones. And, and Roland, I think it's really important also uh, when we talk about, we got to be careful when we say uh, uh, the least of us, right? Because I think that there is this narrative that, uh, that black men, uh, no matter where you are, you don't have assets, right? And I think that, oh, you're not an asset to uh, uh, your, your community. And I think that that narrative has to shift. Uh, I think that we have to find ways to make intergenerational connections. And whether you are formally incarcerated or are you are in the boardroom um, in a corporation, there is something and you are God-given to do 
for our people, right? And I think as a whole, and uh, the young brother uh, was talking earlier, I think what we need at this very essence as black men is love, safety, and a sense of belonging. And we have never had that and from in this country, but we have to bring that up for each other and that everyone has a role and it has to be some kind of interconnected, intergenerational. And it can't just be one sector. Uh, philanthropy is not going to be the cavalry that comes to save the day. We have to understand that we are the cavalry in our own communities, right? We are the curators of the change. And we have so much in our communities that is rich, we can fund ourselves uh, when we look at the faith community and the resources and, and, and how we give. Black people give more than anybody else in this nation. We serve more than anybody else. But we have this opportunity in this transcendent moment of Black Lives Matter to not just focus on policing. That is a, a, an important issue. But here's an opportunity to put everything on the table but environmental justice, criminal justice reform, economic uh, uh, access. And so I think the connections and finding a way. Some folks, your role may just be to write a check. You know, not everybody's going to be on the front line uh, 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 marching. But we need to be able to get a, a, a common narrative for uh, uh, success and, and for liberation, but also offer different on-ramps so no matter where you come from, where your uh, address or your zip code is, that we're all fighting for the same thing. But that's why I think you have to you have to take this. When you hear the phrase, do black lives matter? OK, remember, people are going to answer that question in a different way, depending upon the station of their life. So a father is going to answer it differently, possibly than a single guy. It's going to answer it differently from a guy who actually has uh, owes child support over somebody who doesn't. It's going to be different for the person who is in corporate America, but who's at a high level versus the person who's at a VP level or director level or even lower or all the way at the bottom. It's going to be different from that person in, in these different areas. And, and I think I think I think part of the issue is that for many of us. We make references to the black freedom movement without realizing that it didn't matter what your station was. Jim Crow was Jim Crow. Didn't matter. You couldn't live over there. You all had to leave, live here. And I think as, as somebody who deals with words every day, I think the struggle for a lot of people is understanding I have to meet you where you are and have to I got to ask you. What are your issues and then help connect the dots? in terms of how politics and public policy plays a role in that. So when I roll up on brothers who say, man, po po politics don't, I ain't involved in that and it has no bearing on my life. And I go, really? Let me explain to you how. And then once I, once I connect the dots, they're like, damn, I had no idea. That to me is how I think we have to be approaching this whole deal when we're communicating with brothers who are just like everybody else, black men, like a lot of black women, or like white folks, Hispanic, like they just trying to live their life every day and not really fully understanding how public policy plays a role in a whole bunch of things happening in their lives. 
Anybody can jump yeah, well, in. I think one of the things that is really looking at this, and I think that's an important point, is it goes back to this collective work and responsibility within our communities that we all have to have a collective strategy of engaging folks where they are um, to be able to articulate what change looks like. We also have to make sure that folks understand what winning looks like. Um, too often in our community, uh, Black men, even as we become more successful in life, it's still difficult to see what winning looks like because there's always this this struggle for the next thing. Um, and so even as you're talking to young folks, um, as we, I mean, I got a, a 19-year-old son, a 13-year-old son, and a 17-year-old daughter, and it's helping them to understand what winning looks like. When they, when they hit that wall of apathy around everything that's going on in the world around them about what they see in the streets, the failures of government, the failures of and helping people to understand that you have to put in work in order to create change. I mean, this is not a passive thing. I mean, even if you're in the boardroom, you know that a black CEO is making less than the white CEO doing the same job, right? So the racism impacts folks on all different types of levels on the socioeconomic spectrum. We have to help folks understand what winning looks like and understand that it is about our collective liberation and freedom um, that, that the only way that we get at collective liberation of freedom is if we work together across spectrums, that we don't all have to be exactly the same. We don't have to flow the same way, but there's the same boot that's on our neck no matter where we are on the spectrum. Anybody want to uh, respond to that? Well, well, Roland, and I think that what Diallo said was right on point, and that's not just a piece about uh, what happens for black men. That's just black men, black women. That's all of us. Um, to be black in America uh, means that there are certain limitations imposed by the system upon us, um, that there are certain structural inequities that are in place, and all of us, brothers and sisters, can link arm in arm, young and old, um, up and down the line. Um, it does not matter who you are, that, that, that there are systems and structures that are in place to be able to take care of you and your children and your children's children. And then it goes on to a piece of legacy. Um, because I don't care who you are, um, that the system is shaped in such a way to keep you from being able to pass on any kind of generational wealth. And so then what does it mean to have a sense of legacy to be able to pass on something for your children or your children's children? And, and, and I think those commonalities are ways that we can connect with people. I agree with you that we're all in different stations in life, uh, but I believe that we're all in the same fire. We just may be in different locations within the fire, but the fire still burns. Um, and and we're all still dealing with third and fourth degree burns. Anyone else want to respond to the last question? So let me pick, let me pick up. I want, I want to pick up on that because, again, and, and break it down even further. So you, you talked about um, um, income inequality. You talked about the creation of wealth and being able to pass stuff down. And, and, and the reason I I'm, I'm, I'm keep returning to this when it comes to the messaging, and that is this here. If I'm talking to a brother who's a homeowner, I'm going to have to talk to him in a different way than a brother who's a renter, than a brother who lives with his parents. I'm going to have to talk to somebody in a different way. And, and I, think part, I, think, I think part of this, a lot of times it's real easy I think, I think it's easy on us when we speak, when we talk about the collective, because we sort of want to be able to say, okay, everybody I'm talking to, we're all dealing with the exact same thing here. But it's degrees. I've actually heard black men 
say, hey, on a daily basis, I don't have that same encounter with police. So that's really not my number one or number two issue. This is. And so I think when we're sitting here uh, uh, dealing with this, here, I think the first thing we got to do is it's sort of like what Ella Baker said to SNCC students when they went south. Ella Baker said, look, don't think these sharecroppers who don't have uh, a second or third grade education aren't smart. She said, take off your college clothes. And she said, put on your overalls and ask them, what is it you want to see change? And I'm here to help you with that, not tell you what it is to see change. And I think somebody made a point early how oftentimes we're talking in panels, but we're not listening. To me, that's where it starts. When I encounter somebody at a brother uh, at Dallas Airport, brother said, man, I saw your video and you said folks were stuck on stupid who didn't vote. He said, well, I didn't vote in the last election. Was I stuck on stupid? I went, yep. And he saw his eyes got big and he got deflated. I said, and I'll tell you why. I said, what are the three most important things that matter to you? And then he told me. And I stood there and I said, the president of the United States impacts those three things this way. And then I broke it down. I said, governor impacts it this way. Mayor impacts it this way. And he stood there. He said, I will not make that mistake again. I'm absolutely voting this year. He said, thank you for explaining it to me. And I think that's what doesn't happen enough. We don't ask, what do you care about? But then we then don't connect the dots and wait for them to go, ah, now I see it. Well, I I think for me, I think for me, Roland, that's a very serious problem that we have as black people. I think, you know, if you don't notice that if you if you are a homeowner and 90, 95 or 98% of the people that live around you don't look nothing like you and that doesn't bother you, then there's really nothing I can tell you. If you have a lot of money and you don't realize that most of the people in your circumference don't look like you or come from communities that 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 look like you or that the same culture that you have and that doesn't bother you, then I might not be able to engage you. If, if those things don't bother, if you don't look and say, I have these things, but 90% of the people that I know that come from my community that look like me don't have those things and that's not something that you want to change, then that's an issue that we really have to focus on. If I have to tell you one thing that directly impacts you, that might not impact that just that, you know, well, okay, I'm a homeowner, but you know, the insurance that I have doesn't really work for me. Or I'm, a, you know, I have businesses, but the, the premium is higher for me. If those things that if I have to individually impact you and you don't look at it and say, you know what, the, the, the majority of people who come from where I come from, my culture, my background, my understanding, my grandmother's, where my grandmother came from, the history of where we come from. If that doesn't move you to say, I want all of the people that come from where I come from to have the, at least the chance to be a homeowner as me, then I don't, for me, it's, it's really hard for me to engage those type of people. I have to leave them so they have to figure things out because my, my passion and my understanding is for my people and my culture. And, you know, and that's what I fight for because I understand that every other culture, every other nationality, that's what they do. And that's why they're winning. If we continue to have this ideology about, all right, tell me what, how does this impact me individually? Because I don't, I don't know another culture that says that. They say if, if throughout my life, 
anywhere that you go that's that's I live in Fort Lee, New Jersey, which is populated most by Asians. And they make sure that the Asians are taken care of. It ain't too many there's no stores where black people own stores in those communities. They make sure that they're taken when I was incarcerated, every nationality, when you came to a new house, if you was even if you was a Puerto Rican, if you was a white person, if you was an Asian, when you walked into the house, they said, Do you have anything that you need? They brought you a care package, they made sure you were safe. Black people weren't doing that because there was this individual mind state. So until we get out of that mind state and realize that just because I'm okay, everything is not okay, I don't know how we're gonna win. And, and, yeah, and, and the other side of that though is that we have to look at the systemic side. And yes, there may be some black folks that are not doing that, but we also have to look at redlining. We have to look at access to capital uh, for black businesses and entrepreneurs. We have to look at access to uh, 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 health care. And so I do believe that we also, and I think it was Rev Tony that brought up, that we have to have a systemic approach. I would venture to say that the commonality as a black man, uh, no matter what your economic uh, uh, status or sexual orientation is, that we want to leave a legacy, right? And I think that that is where we can come together. Uh, work that we have done with the Campaign for Black Male Achievement has been around the Black Male Equity Initiative, and we've talked about legacy wealth, and we have brought together uh, in a room black men, some of whom were formerly incarcerated, trying to get out of a, 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 a debt, and others that were doing estate planning, but the central focus was our common fate, our shared uh, fate, and it was done around the history. And I think that once we gotta create these safe spaces, but I think that we have more in common infinitely than there are differences, no matter what uh, uh, your zip code or where you live, and that I think that we gotta create those spaces around, we all want a simple legacy, and, and, and someone brought up the uh, notion of, you know, generational wealth. Who doesn't want that? And how do we organize around that kind of legacy is, uh, I think, a strategy that we can speak to all black men. Uh, yeah, and, um, if I, Who wants to jump in? Yeah, so, so, so to piggyback, um, I think it's important for us to look at sort of it's a it's, it's a macro piece of this and it's a micro piece. Right. So the macro level, obviously, we all want we want to be able to live. We want to be able to thrive. I think Black Lives Matter can't just be about police not killing black people or black people living. We want black people in this country to live and thrive. And, and that's going to take white people. Uh, sharing power. And some people may see that as un-American, but I feel like that's the reality. That's what we got to push for. And what that will do, in my opinion, is create the access to opportunity, create access to lending, create access to, you know, uh, 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 economic justice, economic strength, which in turn, you know, I think will, 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 will allow a lot of black men. I mean, we, we face with so much you know, particularly those that's growing up in impoverished communities, for us to even think that far ahead is not really uh, realistic to a lot of young men because they're trying to survive, right? And so when you're in survival mode, you're not thinking about these things. That's why I think we got to find ways, more ways for cross-fertilization among black men. Like, I would love if just black men would start moving back into certain communities so that, so, so that young black men that don't have 
you know, whatever the situation may be, they have access to you. And this may, this can happen at the church, this can happen at the masjid or whatever the case may be. But we got to find more intentional, strategic ways for that cross-fertilization because if I've never seen it, I can't believe in it. And you, when you start talking to me about generational wealth, when you start talking to me about estate planning and, and, and life insurance and all of these things that's not, I'm not, that's not, you know, conditional or, or not happening in my environment, I'm not going to be receptive to it. And so the only way we do that is to, for, for those black men that, that, that are aware and have that knowledge and have even voting. I mean, I found myself standing in the gap so much in my city for all of these things that we're talking about, trying to be a translator, if you will, trying to be a living example. Um, you know, but 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 when it, it don't touch people when they, they, it's not in their experience. So what do we have to do about that? We got to find more ways to come together. Men, black men that have ascended in whatever industry and in whatever lane, a lot of times they are disconnected from those individuals, whether they come from those communities or not. They're not, it's not a consistent interaction with those communities. So there are different dynamics to your point, Mr. Martin, in terms of, you know, what, what the needs are. But I think sort of baseline need that we all have to speak to is that we want black people, humanity to be seen. We want to be treated fairly. We want equity. These are the things that we can be non-negotiable because until then it's going to be very difficult to address all those more micro issues. It's not, we're not a monolith. Everybody does not come from the hood. Everybody does not have a father doing life in prison. Everybody ain't grow up with people all around, around them dying all the time. Like that's not, I had to learn that in my involvement, right? You know, as I've evolved, I've learned that, like, oh, okay, this ain't the experience of every black man. But at the same time, we have to find places to have these conversations. We have have to have spaces where people can get new new people in their network. And none of us can just speak from our own experience, right? But what we, again, what we have to press on as we talk about this American experiment, right? And even to Mice's point, every other culture does that because they they, they weren't enslaved. Slavery and, and then what followed in this country dismantled us in that way. So I think this is an opportune, um, this is a time, opportunity for all of us to really reimagine what it's going to look like moving forward and to start to strategize to how do we really make those sort of those theories become, you know, manifest and become fruitful. I think this is the time. Like we really got to go for the gusto, if you will, and, and don't leave anything off the table. We really have to say that this is a watershed moment for black people and we want things to change incrementally, maybe in some instances or some cases, but we want to see movement. The needle has to move right here, right now, and we cannot be divided. But the only way we going to, again, be, be united is that we have to have continuous conversations and black men have to be at those tables. Yeah, Roland, this is Dwayne Crawford. I want to say that I'm betting on my brothers, period. I'm betting on my brothers. And all I don't want to say about this part here. This is a watershed moment, but Ferguson was a watershed moment. Right? Rodney King was a watershed moment. This time we've got to come together. I'm gonna say this again. Humble myself and just listen. I've got to try to do my best in the balance of my life, give as much as I can to make sure my younger brothers are given every opportunity and how they define success. But I agree, it's communication we got to keep going. But we got to take advantage. I think what Black Lives Movement has done is, at least to me, you got a long way still to go in the sense of you got to get back out there and do everything possible. The same thing you were, the same goes in the scripture. Much is given, much is required. I've got to meet that requirement. Our brothers got to meet that requirement. We've got to do everything possible and leave a roadmap. When people see your legacy, I'm going to think about my, my family's going to do fine. 
My real legacy's got to be how many brothers did I lay down as much as I could the information and give them the best opportunity for success. Uh, I think I think Jared was and trying like to jump to in. Say, was, was, was that, you know, when, when that Tony Lee Jr. or Jared? Male empowerment. I think that uh, Roland, you made a really good point that we definitely have to uh, take a look at the messaging because not uh, there's not been a, a singular messaging that's been able to uh, resonate with uh, every kind of black man in this country. Um, when I was at Morehouse, um, I read an article by Tommy Shelby uh, where she posed the question, is the foundation of black solidarity collective identity or is it common oppression? And I think that we have to figure out how to translate in our private language, because I believe there's private language that we have to communicate to black men and then public language that we have to communicate to black men. And I think we have to figure out um, how to translate in private language creatively uh, the sentiments of what, uh, like Frederick Douglass said once, where he said that we're one with you under the ban of prejudice and uh, proscription, uh, one with you under the slander of inferiority, one with you in social and political disenfranchisement, that what you suffer, we suffer, what you endure, we endure. Um, and so in an effort to really liberate black men in America, especially young black men, um, we as black male leaders must really call on uh, black men to become a more unified collective agent for social change for the sake of us all. Because like what Martin Luther King Jr. said, whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And I can never be what I ought be until you are what you ought be. And that this is the interrelated structure of reality. And I think that we have to figure out the best way to communicate that to uh, black men in this country, especially this next generation of young black men that's rising up, people around my age, what's the best way to communicate that uh, so that we can truly be that collective um, agent for social change? Hey, Roland, I just want to say one thing real quick. I think uh, Tony Lewis just hit something on the head, though. I think in this moment, we have a chance to reimagine what our future looks like. What we've seen through COVID and the disparities that exist in this across everything from economics to healthcare to police violence, we're seeing that. And so one of the things we need to do is really do a good job of reimagining what the, our future should look like and where what winning looks like. You know, because when you're having conversations with folks, it's great to talk about the problem, but folks need to also hear what the solution looks like and how we plan on working together collectively to get there. And I think if we don't articulate what that vision is. And, you know, to your point earlier, Roland, you said, you know, folks might, like, I don't know any black folks and I've interacted with black folks all across the level, you know, that have not had interactions with police at some point. Like black folks, I don't care where you live, at some point you get that awakening where whiteness and white privilege and white fragility and racism smacks you right in your face. Right. And look, 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 right. Look, 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 find it at some point in your life. But let me take it, it back. Let me, let me take. Sometimes let me, it comes late for folks because they they're blind to it. Right. Um, and so, but back to the point, it's just really uh, imagining what the future should look like and having the conversations necessary and a listening of how we are going to get there collectively. But, but I'll give you an example. The, the, the issue of yeah, racial... Hold, hold, hold on one second. Hold on. Hold on, hold on one second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on one second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on one second. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on one second. Hold on. Sean, hold on. Sean, one second. Sean, hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to hold that point because I got to pick up what he just said. Like racial profiling. The reason racial profiling became a national story 
It was because black men of a certain income level were being stopped on the New Jersey Turnpike. That's actually how that thing really began to blow up. So what happened was you had brothers and sisters who were making good money. You're muted. You're muted. You're muted. I'm, I'm. All of that? Okay. Okay. All right. Here's the deal. You, 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 here's the deal. You, 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 you have black men. Sean, Sean, hold on. Sean, Sean. Sean, one second. Black community. Sean, hold on. Looks like. Sean, hold on. Aside of that, we are not responsible for ending uh, white supremacy. White people are responsible for ending white supremacy. If we can find $3 trillion in two weeks to respond to COVID 19, because that was important, and I agree that is important. We can't find $3 trillion for reparations. Black folks are not pulling those strings. So I think it's really, we have to be real clear on what we can do, but what is on white people and right. their responsibility and the pressures that we can continue and how they have to change and the onus that's on them. So I'll, I'll, I'll do this here, and, 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 Sean, and Sean Preston, you can jump in. And this is the point I'm making. The, the racial profiling issue became national when black people of a certain income were being stopped by cops. And what that hit them in the face was, I might be able to drive a Mercedes or a BMW, but I'm no different than somebody else uh, who's, who doesn't have my income. And so what happens, so you're absolutely right, people are hit, people are hit. So African-Americans who move into upscale neighborhoods, and then they're being stopped, well, do you live here? Why are you? And they're looking for homes. All of a sudden, it's like, whoa, hold up. Yeah, so now they begin to realize my education, my degree, my salary, none of that stuff still matters. I'm still seen as a threat in, in, in the neighborhood. Sean Preston, I think what we have to do is, what we have to do is, again, when it comes to hitting folks on these issues, it's like anything else. I'm going to get you. I'm a, I, I got to get to you where you are. Now, one person may be here. One person may be here. But I got to get to both of y'all. So I got to figure out how to get to you to realize we in this thing together. But I got to first figure out. I got to meet you where you are. And then, if, then that means not bringing you up. That's great. But what I can't do is not talk to you or say you're not worth it because your voice still matters and your vote still matters agree like a lot of times in our community we often say like what a person need instead of asking them what do they want like i see that on an everyday basis where we just preach 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 and we never ask our communities like what do we want like what do we want from um our government what do we want from representation what do we want from our educational system so i i, I fully agree with you sir uh, someone else uh, make the last uh, last comment right here before we transition to our second panel. I just want to say that this was an excellent panel because this this panel represents exactly what it is that you speak about. It's so many different dynamics of black men, you know, who come from so many different backgrounds, have so many different experiences, and these conversations have to continue in order for us to get to that one point, that one thing that we all can connect upon that makes sure that we get the equity and the, the not just survival, but we're able to thrive and live as black men. So I appreciate this conversation. 
All right, then. Uh, gentlemen, we certainly appreciate it. Uh, folks, don't forget, you can go to the Black Youth Vote pages uh, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Uh, thanks a bunch to all of you. Uh, and uh, I'll uh, just go ahead, again, read your name. So just real quick here, uh, big shout out for participating uh, in this first panel conversation, uh, Jared Sawyer, also Sean Dove, Diallo Brooks, uh, Reverend Tony Lee, Dwayne Crawford. Uh, we have, of course, uh, Tony Lee, uh, Tony uh, Lewis Jr., and also uh, Sean Preston and my son. Folks, we thank you very much. And my son, glad to see you, homeboy, to drive off in your car. <laughs> All right, yeah, peace to love, guys. All right, folks, we're going to take a break right now. We're going to uh, then pull up our second panel. Uh, so we're going to go to a break. We'll be back on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Mary Spiel, her sister, she is actually the inventor, creator of these uh, great headphones. Also, she has a virtual reality headset. You can actually get uh, these folks with a promo code in partnership with us at Roller Martin Unfiltered. All you got to simply do is uh, use this code RMVIP2020 when you go to seek.com. That's seek.com, C-E-E-K.com. And so these are 360-degree uh, 4D headphones. 
You can use them for gaming. You can listen to music. You could also, of course, uh, use them for you know any number of purposes. Uh, absolutely fabulous. You also see there the virtual reality headset they have as well. And so you could use that promo code for either one of these two devices. And we certainly appreciate them being a partner. Seek.com. Promo code is RMVIP2020. All right, folks, I told you... Uh, Again, we appreciate all the folks who join our fan club. Uh, folks have sent us uh, some phenomenal letters. Uh, I've got some of those uh, letters right here uh, on our desk. Uh, and so I got uh, folks have been sending me stuff, uh, different notes. And so we appreciate them. I'm going to pull up one of these right here. Uh, we got a thank you for providing uh, uh, great information on the show. Best of luck in your endeavors. Uh, Lady Fitzgerald uh, Smith. Also, uh, I had somebody say, don't laugh at the envelope. You got your money, LOL. And so uh, they did say, uh, be nicer to uh, Melek. He just has a different point, a different view of things. Nah. Uh, please continue doing what you do. Are you doing? You bring in the funk with truth straight up. Uh, this is uh, Jawan Nelson. Uh, and let's see here. I want to thank you for the knowledge and information that you provide on your show. You had the CEO of Op for Operation Hope on your show and the information I obtained. I was able to pass it on to some of the small business, black businesses in Hobbs, New Mexico. You helped me to help other blacks, and I truly appreciate it. Keep it coming. That's Julia Daniels. Uh, thank you so much for all of what you do. My wife and I watch faithfully every evening, which we can contribute more, but we are currently on Social Security. John and... Um, Teresha Henderson, I think that's what it is. If it's not, I'm sorry. And so, folks, if you want to join our Bring the Funk fan club, your dollars go to support this show. Simply go, you can use Cash App, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. You also have PayPal.me forward slash R Martin Unfiltered. Venmo, Venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered. You can also send, of course, uh, a, uh, a, a uh, money order to our address, New, New Vision Media Inc., NU Vision Media Inc. Do me a favor, make it out to that, not the show. So because that's the name of the parent company, 1625 K Street, 1625 K Street, Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006. All right, folks, y'all know what time it is. No charcoal grills are allowed. I'm white. I got you, huh? Yeah, um, illegally selling water without a permit. On my property. Whoa! Hey! Bad number. Give me your ass. You don't live here. I'm uncomfortable. Oh, uh, y'all, so y'all know they announced that they're removing the imagery from Aunt Jemima. Well, this week, Donald Trump went to Arizona talking to the Turning Point USA Youth Meeting. That's that Charlie Kirk, Candace Owens group, a bunch of idiots. Lord, y'all, here's this stupid white woman, a student who shared her knowledge, her unbelievable expertise about Aunt Jemima on yesterday. Aunt Jemima was canceled. And, and if you didn't know, Nancy Green, the original first Aunt Jemima, she was a picture of the American dream. She was a freed slave who went on to be the face of the pancake syrup that we love and, and have in our pantries today. Um, you know what? That child is so dumb. I want, y'all play that again. Just play that again. Play it again. Aunt Jemima was canceled. And, and if you didn't know, Nancy Green, the original first Aunt Jemima, she was a picture of the American dream. She was a freed slave who went on to be the face of the pancake syrup that we love and, and have in our pantries today. 
Y'all, this, this, look at this tweet. I mean, there is a complicated story about Nancy Green and how she made and used her wealth, but the presentation of the image was absolutely derogatory, and this turning point person does not get it at all. She was a figure of minstrelsy. Y'all see that? These people don't, these people are clueless. I mean, they're, they're nuts. They have no idea what the hell they're talking about. I, 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 I don't even understand. All right, folks. Um, wow. That's here we go. Ready for our second panel? Let me know, please. Uh, I, I don't, I, I, I truly, I, I don't understand these folks. The bottom line is they can't handle really what's happening in this country that we really are sick and tired of these images. And then they're like, how dare you actually want to change them? That's what's going on. All right, folks, ready for our panel two for our National Coalition of Black Civic Participation. Uh, I'm going to introduce the panel. First, let me know when they're pulling up. But here are all the folks in the second panel. Daryl Coles, National BYV Project Assistant Intern with the National Coalition of Black Civic Participation. Demetrius Briscoe is National Black Justice Coalition. Uh, Pink Cornrows. Tommy Dorch, Jr., Chairman of the Board of the NCBCP, Chairman also 100 Black Men of America. Desmond Mead, he is the President of the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition. Bishop Staccato Powell, uh, Bishop AME Zion Church, Western Region, President Board of Bishops, AME Zion Church, also Reverend Lennox Yearwood, President and CEO of the Hip Hop Caucus, and Hassan Solomon. He is the National Coalition of Black City Participation, board member, legislative director for the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers. Those are our panelists uh, for our second discussion. This discussion is gonna, is gonna center on uh, black men as organizations in terms of how we can take. So the first conversation we talked about black men, the first conversation we talked about black men and then, of course, uh, as individuals, how we reach them. This one, we're talking about organizations, how we use our organizing power to be able to affect change. Now, as I said last week, uh, we had a conversation right here. Uh, it, was a part, it was a partnership with Alpha Phi Alpha. And that really was what a driving point of the conversation. How do we use our power? Uh, to speak to these issues, but we do so with organizations. Now, see, one of the things that I've been saying for the longest that we don't really understand is that we've got great infrastructure. We've got a lot of organizations out here. But the question then is, is how we are using our organizations, how we are uh, taking these entities and then putting their power to use. That is a real big part of, part of the thing here. And, and I've been saying this for the longest, that if you read Dr. King's book, uh, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, he literally says in the book, there are four institutions that can save black America. He says the black church, the black press, fraternities and sororities, and what he wrote, Negro professional organizations. And so I've always said, what's the point of having infrastructure if you don't use it? What's the point of having uh, 100,000 members? What's the point of having chapters uh, in different uh, cities if you are not using it? That's really where we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is 
using organizations, how do we then begin to mobilize and organize? Or, or, organize? What, 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 Dr., um, what, what Dr. Barber's been doing is important because what they have been doing is mobilizing and organizing. What they have been doing is training, going city to city, organizing people. That's what we have to have more of. And I think too often our organizations are so focused internal. What's happening within the organizations as opposed to as opposed to how we can use our power external. And so uh, what I'm trying to do, is I want to I want to pull up uh, some of that conversation uh, and, and play some of that because that you, that you, that you missed last week. Uh, and so, OK, folks, we got our panel ready. Okay, well, so there we go. All right, the panel is there. All right, so, um, Lon, do you, do you have another introduction? No, I'm fine, but I just want to say that uh, I appreciate what you're doing. A lot, very powerful first uh, session. This second one should be just as good because you've got a lot of, a lot of power in the community in terms of uh, the spiritual community, 100 black men, so... Go at it, Roland. It's all yours, man. All right, Tommy Dorch, I want to throw it up to you first. You're the chair of the National Coalition of Black Civic Participation Board. This is what, what I was just saying is that I that we have we have we have lots of organizations, but I simply believe, and I've been saying this for a long time, that we are not we are not properly maximizing our leverage, our resources, and our brain power to be able to affect change. If there are city councils and school boards and county commissioners and state legislatures and Congress, if they don't know when they see black and gold or crimson and cream or pink and green, or if they don't see that symbol, that, that, that lapel pin, 100, 100 black men, if they don't see Prince Hall Masons, if they don't see that, that means that we are not properly leveraging our power externally. We're too focused on our internal uh, dynamics. Right. Well, well Roland, one, one, you're right. And, and that's why we have to be advocates. I have all of my chapters of 100 Black Men of America have to have public policy committees because they have to make a difference in their local communities. And so those are the things that we understand. What good is to have a potential for power if you don't use it? And we have to be prepared also to call out our own people in our own community, like Senator Scott today wanted to water down what the Congressional Black Caucus has worked for for, for some time to get us this a new um, Justice and Policing Act. What we have to do as an organization is understand we've got to make a difference everywhere. I've got 18 members of Congress. I've got mayors and city council people all throughout the country. But the key for us... And that's why the coalition is so important. We have 70 members, but all 70 members of the National Coalition on Black Civic uh, Participation don't always show up. It's the coalition effort. We came together during the hurricanes and, and all, and then we die out. We get excited from Trayvon and want to do something, then it dies out. We've got to work collectively. And that's why in, in my organization, with over 125,000 young people, and our members, we require every chapter to have to be consistent on in dealing with education, with dealing with, with the issue on economic empowerment, dealing with health and wellness, and of course, dealing with mentoring. And if we don't insist it on that, and you know, in our fraternity, I'm Omega, you're Alpha, 
But we got some folks still want to socialize instead of using the political power. So you, you're right. We waste what we have that could make a difference. And then the last thing is that we've got to be focused. The police brutality is a catalyst, but we are getting our butts kicked every day from elected officials, from Congress to local uh, governments and all. So racism is everywhere, and we can't just say that only police brutality. We got to deal with racism everywhere. And so that's why we need to collectively come together. And in our organizations, we either need to be true or we need to get our butts out of the business. Uh, Hassan, you're with the machinists and aerospace engineers. And the reality is that's what unions have always been, organizing forces, operating and speaking for the collective. Do we have Hassan there? Hassan, if you're there, unmute yourself, please. I'm here. Go right ahead. Go right ahead. And that is what I was saying is that um, with uh, the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, again, unions, that's what they, uh, were, they were organized to serve that particular purpose. And so you must be able to be, you must be able to be organized, mobilized and organized to affect change. Hassan, go ahead. Yes, no, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, my organization has over 600,000 members. We're the largest defense and aerospace union in North America. We're also the largest transportation union. And a lot of those workers in the transportation industry are people of color. And our goal is to make sure that they understand why elections matter. They understand, most importantly, why their vote matters. And uh, I listened to you earlier and you talked about connecting the dots. And that's exactly what the Machinist Union tries to do. We educate our membership on how important the, the, electoral, the electoral process is. You know, the game is the economy. And the rules to that game is legislative policy. And that policy is written by the people who we elect to Congress and to the White House. Now, unfortunately, those rules are written for workers to lose. Those rules are written for black people to lose. Those rules right now being written to benefit Main Street and definitely like Martin Luther King Avenue or Main Street. So what we're trying to do is make sure that we elect people that want to support us and support our community and our agenda. And in order to affect change, in order to change the bad policy, you have to change the bad politicians. And so that's what we try to do. We try to educate our members on a daily basis. And we don't, we start early. We don't wait to just election time to start doing our voter mobilization and education program. We do it every year. We don't wait a couple of days before the vote. We're doing that program monthly, weekly, in the union halls and in the community. Desmond Mead, you laid an amendment four there in Florida, which restored the voting rights for formerly incarcerated. You could, that was a 10-year effort. You could not have done that if you did not mobilize and organize. Speak to how, how critically important it is where, for, that where groups chose to get behind your effort as opposed to you trying to go to individuals, why groups mattered. Yo, definitely. Um, you know, I, I tried the, the solo. I, first of all, thank you for having me on, um, Roland, and of course, the National Coalition on Black Civic Participation. Uh, yeah, you know, early on in the campaign, you know, I was... It was basically a one-man show, and, and I realized that, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I even reached out to you, Roland, because I thought that this was a, an amazing opportunity to get 
the divine nine engaged in in trying to collect petitions uh, to help put amendments for on the ballot. And so, you know, definitely, um, I know you're going to hate this, but, you know, the mega sci-fi, they, they, they definitely stood up. You know, the, the Delta stood up, the uh, uh, um, AKA stood up, you know, and, and, and really gave us a big push in a lot of our communities in which we needed that help. Uh, um, there was still a lot left to be desired, and I'm gonna be uh, completely real. Um, but like, you know, we're an organization that believe in second chances, and and so guess what? The divine and I have a real second chance to get down and dirty. And here's the key, because I think your first panel uh, uh, really touched on something, Tony Lewis and my son. When we talk about so often, we get caught up in only wanting to talk to the people that we're comfortable with talking to, right? And, and this is the time. In, in, in our election, where folks really have to talk to people who they're not comfortable. They got to talk to the Pookies and the Ray Rays, right? They've got to go to the hood, in the streets, on the corners, and have those conversations because those people in our communities are people that have traditionally been ignored, right? And so we're hoping that, that this time and with this movement that we see throughout the country, that folks are understanding that Pookie and Ray Ray is just as important as Dr. So-and-so and, and Sora so-and-so and, and, and Brother so-and-so and Reverend so-and-so, that Pookie and Ray Ray can bring the heat and they could actually be that force that takes us over the top. And, and that and that is the thing that um, Bishop Powell, we've had look, look, for for decades. The church has served as that. But what you have now, and I don't think a lot of people really understand this. What you're seeing now, you have the, the, the greatest increase as really being a non-denominational. Now, people say that's wonderful. But the thing about non-denominational, you're actually not linked to anybody else. So the great thing about denominations is that you have infrastructure. And so when you have infrastructure, you're able to actually place a single call, send out a single email, and now all of a sudden line people up to be able to get behind uh, in action. And so uh, how are you in this moment of Black Lives Matter, how are you emphasizing among the AME Zion Church uh, what what needs to be done using that infrastructure to be agents of change? It's historically documented that the black church has perhaps been at the forefront of every movement of transformation in this nation and even around the world. When you look at the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King was a strong voice, but he was also an African-American preacher. We can also document things down in Montgomery where the Amy Zion Church was at the forefront. We have the Black Methodist United that consists of the AMEs, AME Zion and CME Church. And 10 years ago, uh, we had a great gathering in Columbia, South Carolina, and we came out with a male investment program targeted at a strategic, systemic, sustainable uh, initiative to address the very things that we are seeing right now. What we have to do is not simply talk the talk, but as Tommy has said and others, we have to now operationalize and mobilize and implement these strategies. And even on the first panel, one of the reoccurring themes was not 
simply the vote, which is very important. We have to do that. We have to not just go to the polls, but we have to begin to take advantage of the early voting process. There are groups like Sojourners and uh, the Skinner Institute, along with the Black Church. They have a Lawyers and Collars Day where we can now vote early. So we have to mobilize our people in the churches to vote early. Though we're not gathering in the sanctuaries as we have done before, the church is not just a building. We have to continue to have linkages with our people and mobilize them to the significance of what's happening at this very moment, not just with Black Lives Matter. But the key thing is we have to now ensure that we have our own. Everything we need, we have. We don't have to wait for anybody to fund our causes or to do anything. We spend perhaps more money in the U.S. economy on things of luxury than anybody else in this society. Now we have to have our own banking institutions, not just the small-time mom-and-pop lending agencies, but a global bank that links us from this uh, country and all African-Americans of the diaspora to the continent of Africa, where we have the greatest resources on all the planet. So it's, it's, it's time for us to move away from just talking to talk, Roland. Uh, I appreciate what uh, the National Coalition of Black Civic Participation and Melanie has done uh, down through this last uh, five, six years or so. But we've got to, those of us who are on this call tonight, not just have a candid conversation but we have got to begin to mobilize. And we are relaunching on August 1st, the Mail Investment Program. You can like us on Facebook at the Mail Investment Program. You can go on to Instagram where you will see at MIP The Village, because we have to empower our men, boys, to stand up and be strong models and be the atoms of this generation and be who God has commissioned and called us to be in this moment in time. Apollos, um, again, infrastructure matters. How are, how is your organization mobilizing and organizing uh, specifically black men uh, when it comes to what's happening right now in the streets, but also in the suites? Well, for us, it's first of all, thank you for having me this evening and being a part of it. We appreciate the leadership of Melanie Campbell. Uh, one thing that we do is we continue to work with other unions and our, I consider Hassan my brother, but also our leader with the labor roundtable and showing the strength among black trade unionists and being a part of those organizations and moving. One thing we're doing is also by closing the ranks, particularly of those who are in law enforcement that are black, to stand forward on some of the issues that are affecting black communities to move them forward. Uh, many of our folks are in our industry that our federal employees continue to see the struggles and push forward. However, they are there trying to make corrective change. And in corrective change, that also means taking corrective action. So you'll see them now engaging our membership to make sure, hey, uh, have you checked your own voting records? Have you made sure you've been voting? Have you made a plan for voting? So we're doing different things that we've never done before around organizing and being trade unionists. We are engaging our membership in different ways and then we're branching out because one thing that we realize in our organization is that we can't do it all by ourselves. We have to have partnerships. We have to be with folks. And then also I'm always encouraged by uh, a mentor, uh, Mr. Mr. Dosier, 
making sure that we're connecting with our young folks that are in the trade unionist movement with the young organization, which is the Young 40 Group. I spoke with a person today and he's like, hey, I need to make sure I'm being engaged in Florida because that's where I want to get out and, and help people vote. But I put my ballot in so I could actually vote early. So we're connecting all of those dots for our members and continue to mobilize by also trying to build strength in numbers. Demetrius, the, the, pow, the power of organi- or using organizations to, to drive and their infrastructure to drive change. Yes, sir. Um, well, my organization, Pink Corn Rose, well, and um, National Black Justice Coalition, is focused on policy change. And so we have to see how dismantling the system of white supremacy and system, systemic racism is going to make sure that black and brown people are not being killed by police officers and not being wiped out by medical um, institutions that are not seeing our best interests at heart, right? I think having economic power is good, but we can't just build these economic systems when the government is still doing things, white supremacy is still doing things to push us down. So I really think we need to organize the community by understanding what we need to do by dismantling and not just voting, because voting is great and it's important, but we have to work, work, work by telling our elected officials that we need to dismantle certain systems that's actually killing our bodies. So I think that's where we need to start as well. Well, I, well we are focused on this policy. Well, I, I think that I think the thing there, uh, Daryl, then Reverend Yearwood, Daryl first, is that what what we often do is our messaging is vote, but our messaging is then doesn't shift to what then happens after the election, regardless of if your candidate won or lost, which is why organizations matter. Um, that was the, the critique I offered when Diddy made his comment about holding out voter hostage is you can't make an argument for something before the election if you don't have an infrastructure that can then hold a person accountable after the election. So um, I'd just like to start off by um, saying thank you for Manny Campbell for this experience. Um, and also to you, Roland, for sharing your platform to us. Um, so the answer, you know, try my best to answer your question. You know, our organizations and coalitions, you know, I think need to come together. When we come together, because we're all reaching the same, we're all trying to reach the same goal, get to the same journey. So to quote Malcolm X, he, he said, um, it's not that we are outnumbered, but we are just out-organized. So, you know, we all the organizations come together, just like voting, when Black people come to turn out together, when we all turn out together, you know, we make real change. So organizations, we come together, we do real work, like in the, the, in the National Coalition on Black State Participation, we... We pride ourselves on partnering with organizations. We've been getting out, doing great work, having youth watch groups. And, you know, to, to you know, further talk about what the first discussion of the panel was saying, the messaging, which I thought was real important. The messaging needs to be better to reach to better to our Black youth. So, you know, I just think all the organizations we need to come together and we can put out a more powerful message and we can make real systemic change when we all, you know, brain power storm together. So, Reverend Yearwood, to that particular point again, how you must be able to then—it's one thing to mobilize during the election, but then, of course, 
after the election is over. If you're talking about a member of Congress, that's two years. United States Senate is six years. Governor is four years. Uh, you know, a, a county official could be four years as well. And I think that, that is, to me, that has been the greatest mistake uh, that we have made, not just black folks, but many people out there, is that there are, there are so billions of dollars are spent on the election, the election, the election. But then once the election is over, then shifting to, okay, election is over, now we gotta have this entity as then pushing and prodding, and that might mean I need people who are sending emails and making phone calls, and we might need you to show up to city council meetings and school board meetings. Again, t taking all of that and then harnessing it, that to me has been the failure uh, in many ways because we say, oh, welcome to the agenda. Well, you can ask for an agenda during the election, but if you, think, if you ain't pressing and holding accountable after the election, all you did was waste your time. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Roland. And I just want to, before I say anything else, I just want to say thank you. I want to join the chorus of all of those who have already thanked my dear sister, Melanie Campbell, and all those who work with her. And, and obviously you, Roland, for how you've been using black media to give us a platform. Um, but you're 100% right. I mean, it's clear, and I say this all the time, that demonstration without legislation leads to frustration. And if we're only focused on the demonstration, but not on how we are shaping policy, um, then, we're, then we're gonna continue this, this circle of confusion. Um, the most important time in, in any president's um, tenure is in the first 100 days. Um, we should already have a, a roadmap, literally, for the first 100 days from January 20th to about mid-May, um, June, we should, we should already know. Uh, we should already know who we want for those positions in the cabinet. We should know, literally, uh, we should know what we want as far as the policies and across all the agencies, from HUD, um, EPA, um, you know, Health and Human Services. We should be, the thing that I think we're not digging deep enough, we're just doing the, the surface thing. Um, and our institutions should do more. I actually agree with you. We should, we should, we should do more. Um, I think many of us are doing more. I think we realize that we need to shape policy because we clearly see either you shape policy or policy will definitely shape you. And I think that we need to get more engaged in the policy, not just the conversation, the policy, not in the policy, what it means to us, but really in the policy, okay, listen, if we, when this person gets in office, um, this is plan A for the first 100 days. This is exactly what we want them to do. And the alternate. And so if, if Trump wins again, I mean, if that happens, then we should be playing, like, what happens in that 100 days? Uh, what do we do? Are we, are we protesting? Are we, how, how are we aligning ourselves? You know, what are we doing um, to ensure with the new Congress, with those on the state and local governments, um, how, are we, how are we managing that? And that's where I go to you also, your first point, I want to say that, Reverend Dr. Barber, I want to join with you and say he is phenomenal um, of what he is doing, because what he is showing many of us is that we have a tendency to want to operate in our silos. And Reverend Barber is saying, no, we must break the silos. He's also saying to many of us that we have a tendency to only work in one space, like we're in voter registration, we're in voter protection, which is critical, but we're just staying in that space. Oh, we're in the, the movement for black lives, or we're in labor, we're in the church. What he is doing is this. 
I, he's saying that these other spaces that have traditionally also been run by our white counterparts, I'm not just going to leave that to them. So it's militarism, I'm going to be in that space. If it's the environment, I'm going to be in that space. If it's poverty, I'm going to be in that space. So what Reverend Barber is doing is saying that, listen, it's all linked together. We must break down the silos. And that's why you're seeing this tremendous success around the Poor People's Campaign. But definitely, to your point and to your question, um, we have to get much more serious about the, the first 100 days um, uh, of the new president's um, tenure and what they propose to do. Uh, anyone can answer this question, I mean, because the, the, the thing that, and this, this segment of the discussion is, is about organizations uh, and infrastructure. Uh, and folks, again, jump out and then we'll pull you up. It's very simple. Not only must you be organized, but you also must train people. And, and I, if there's one thing that Reverend Barber's been doing that, that is the most, most underappreciated aspect of the Black Freedom Movement is that SCLC, SNCC, CORE, NAACP, they trained people. They took them through civics classes. They had freedom schools. There are a lot of people today who just want to sort of just jump out there. And I'm like, if you don't even have, you don't go through the training, you don't know what the hell you're doing. Who wants to speak on that? Anybody? So, uh, Desmond? Uh, go ahead, Desmond. Take a part of it if I can. It's uh, a policy here. The, I, I've noticed that one of our partners kind of picked that back up, which is the A. Philip Randolph Institute. And one thing that uh, Brother Solomon and I have us working on is, we have literally gone back and started training folks, particularly on how we engage our communities, going back to barbershops and these lines and making sure we're sitting there talking to folks on Saturdays uh, when they're at their busiest portions and engaging them on the policy. The one thing that I think that we miss on that we've engaged with people is not just the elections, but also after the elections, watching our elected officials with some of these boards and commissions where things are decided that don't necessarily come before a city council or a county council and engaging our politicians specifically that, hey, when it comes time for these other appointments, you should be looking at our communities when it comes to zoning. And that's something that A. Philip Randolph is doing when they're having their stuff uh, with uh, Clayola Brown, uh, something that Brother Simon and I are working on with them to engage them with that. And I think that's what we are to make sure that we are engaging our people going back to those types of trainings and also, but not just in our traditional space of at a conference, but at a barbershop and at beauty salons. And I know they're doing that in places like Ohio and in Florida and in North Carolina. Uh, Desmond, you want to jump in there, go ahead. Yeah, cause uh, what you were saying just resonated with me, Roland. I mean, cause Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, uh, the program that we're running right now, I think is, is so unique and much needed. Like when we're out there and we're registering returning citizens, right? We're not just registering the vote. We're also giving them surveys that they have to complete because we want to find out what it is that keeps them up at night. What are the issues that's most important to them? And then once we get that, we're actually able to re-engage them and have them join our chapters where we actually do take them through what we call, a, it's a program that one of our leaders and my wife, Sheena, actually developed called power training sessions, right? Where they have three different levels. Level one is Civics 101, you know? Many of, uh, of returning citizens have never voted 
before. And, and that's something that we seem to forget, right? Look at a, a person like me, uh, when I'm voting in August, it's going to be the first time that I've voted in over 30 years, all right? And so there is that basic level of training about where to vote, how to vote, you know, uh, uh, and, the t- and the type of, uh, of things that you need to know to be an informed voter. But then that level two is how we connecting now your vote and letting you know how powerful it is and connecting it to issues that you said are important to you. And then level three is how do you become that field general in your family or even in your community where you're learning about how to canvas, how to run phone banks, how to organize community meetings and how to mobilize your people to the polls. And so that is something that we are, are definitely 100% committed to uh, in Florida, especially when engaging Pookie and Ray Ray, right? It's an equal. Because we do believe, once again, that they're going to be the difference, that with people with felony convictions are going to cover the gap, uh, not only in Florida, but throughout this country. And I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. Anybody else? Go ahead, jump in. But there's also another element to the training. Those who have spoken before, I totally agree with. But we have to start early. We can't allow our young people to get to teenage years and start trying to do remedial and reactionary things. So what we are also proposing is that we start at five years old with our Saturday academies and train them in civic participation, train them in economics so they understand what it means to be responsible and also have the means to equip themselves to care for their families. We have to make sure they have a proper spiritual grounding and foundation. As I alluded to early on, uh, Dr. King and who he was in terms of clergy, you've already heard about uh, Bishop Barber and the things he's doing. So we have to begin a strategic training process for our young people. We can't wait until they have an encounter with the police and then try to rescue them. We have to teach them how not to have an instant with the judicial system, if at all possible, and make sure that they have the grounding to graduate from secondary education and have the avenues that's available to them that can continue to equip them and empower them for the days that lie ahead. So when they get to the age of voting, they don't have to be coerced to register. It's a part of who they are. When they get to the point of engaging city councils and ready to run for school board or going to become a, a justice on the Supreme Court, that they have the equipping that they need from the very inception of life and not wait until they get into a situation where we have to come and try to remediate the, situ- the circumstance and situation. Hey, Roland, if I can, if I can um, jump in. Um, if I could jump in there real quick, this is I just want to just want to add one one piece to that I think is important. Um, and I just want to say that young people, that I well, first I agree with you on the training aspect that we should do more training and our institutions should do more training. But I, def- I definitely want to say this that young people are out there doing that. I want to, I don't want that to not right right they are no no I, I, I'm, right I'm, is- no they are I'm just simply emphasizing it because right. the, again the reason I'm saying that's the most under appreciated aspect of it because the train the train everybody just thinks that well you know what i i, I want to protest and i think we are seeing some of that where okay one you're protesting but then also then how do you now channel that 
then how do you now train? How do you shift what happens in the streets to now, okay, what do you do? The, the, the city council committee, the fire and police committee, as opposed, what about the city council? Well, you got to go to the committee first before that bill goes to the full council. The training aspect, we got to constantly keep people understanding that our organizations can also be doing that. Uh, so Reverend Yearwood, then Tommy Dorch. Yeah, no, I, and I, okay, I, thank you for that clarification, Roland. Um, I agree with you on that. I just want to just make sure because I think that what we're also seeing now um, with, I think, a lot of the young folks who are out there is because they have been having some real serious conversations. Actually, I think that in their being bold in their analysis, for instance, they want to defund the police. I think those who've been around want to coach that and change that and and wordsmith that, and they are very right. clear on right. what they want and the reason why they want that. They want to, you know, say, listen, the budgets that are going to these performance are bloated, and literally school teachers don't have what they need, and, and listen, we, didn't, we need to redirect funding. And so they're very clear on that. They're very clear on their analysis. They're really clear what they want. So I think that there have been a number of groups from the Dream Defenders, Hip Hop Caucus, uh, Sunrise, Zero Hour, so many of these young groups that are out there um, that are having some real serious conversations that maybe we don't see. I mean, I've seen I'm around them. Right, maybe some right. Maybe don't see it, but they're having some real deep conversations. And it's not just black folk. You have white folk and brown folk and red folk. All these folks coming together, which is now creating the element where you don't see this white allies or white accomplices. And so I think that we have a new moment here where there is some training. But to your point, as institutions, we should do better. I mean, us being the, the larger civil rights organizations, we should do much better having that training or giving the resources to these young folks so they can do the training themselves. Tommy, go ahead. And, and, and I think what we have to understand is not either or. There are a number of things we must incorporate. The coalition, for example, we're being successful because we have units throughout all multiple states. And those units work together. They do training. They do collaboration. We have our black youth vote, and I have to give credit. Our women are far, far ahead of us black men, and we're trying to address on how we play catch up as black men. And then even understanding now the conversation, uh, Roland, you mentioned earlier, we're talking about waiting until we get a president. We need to be, and, and, and you know, again, we need to be true to ourselves and quit political games of knowing what the reality is. Um, we're putting all our eggs in one basket, for example, saying we want uh, Vice President Biden to have a black female candidate for vice president, when in fact, we need to be talking right now about an African-American woman on the Supreme Court. We need to talk about those cabinet positions we, we want. We need to be talking about the budget that includes uh, African-American and small businesses, that includes this whole issue about funding education back to the level of where it was, looking at what we do for HBCUs, looking at this whole issue as we look at judgeships. This president we have now just appointed as 200 judge. Yep. And those folks are on the bench for life. And we need to understand what that means. And then we need to look at the U.S. attorneys throughout this country and look at the Justice Department, which has been totally decimated. And then we need to look at other issues like the black banks. Ten years ago, we had 85. We're now to 19. There's so many issues instead of us looking at one issue and we're getting ready from the coalition to move our Southern strategy team into Atlanta to work more in the South so we can make a difference even in this upcoming election. But what will work is coalitions working together 
and us understanding too, as we have this black, uh, that real men vote, is getting black men to get out front and quit sitting behind, getting our black owned businesses who benefited from all the work all of us have done, who are taking their money home and afraid to speak up and speak out. And so we've got to understand the strategies. And one last thing, in Fulton County here, we have a predominantly black county commission, but we've got one commissioner who is a Republican hiding on a Democratic umbrella who votes with the Republicans every time. They try to cut out the CBDG grants. That's money that helps our people. He refused. And what we did for three consecutive commission meetings, we shut them down because they have public um, opening times for public uh, input. And we packed that place. We had so many folks, they couldn't take care of their business. That finally, we scared them into doing the right thing. We need to use strategies that work, but the other side, it works when we all come together. Uh, and we talk about that agenda. Uh, and again, um, anyone I know in this round have not heard from Hassan, Demetrius, uh, and Daryl. Um, um, I think Apollos as well, but uh, I did I did hear Apollos. So, for instance, um, and I had no problem saying it because I criticized it then. It, it was an embarrassment that that the that the black organizations did not hold a meeting until five years into Obama's term to talk about a black agenda. It was after it was after the, the election in 2012, and I was I was there, and I was going. So we just skipped the whole first term. Now, granted, there were organizations who did stuff, but LGBT organizations presented Obama with a 54 a 54 page agenda within his first 60 days. I remember when that was that was some sisters who were upset with the My Brother's Keeper initiative. And they were like, well, where's the My Sister's Keeper initiative? And I had to remind them that was an office of White House women and girls that was created within the first 90 days. Why were y'all not demanding that office uh, uh, present an agenda? See, so I, so, I, so I think in many ways we can't, at some point, we have to be willing to look in the mirror and we can't just say, hey, what about us if we have not organized to push people to address us? Well, Rowan, I like to answer that. Um, to go back to the issue of training young people, right? I think we have to have a pipeline of leadership, right? We need to have organizations making sure that these people that are coming up in the protests that are marching in the streets are being trained and being brought into the conversation about you need maybe one day run for office or you need to make sure that you're going to your civic engagement meetings, your council meetings, talking to your congressman, right? I think we need to have room for young people that are not necessarily given the opportunity to be in these spaces, right? If it wasn't for Pink Corps Rose and the National uh, Black Justice Coalition, I wouldn't be here for you today, right? So I really think it's to give space to people who are not necessarily heard, who are not necessarily seen as someone who should be in the front lines, like queer people, trans people, right? I really think we need to reach out to those different organizations, different people, different groups to say, okay, well, we see you, we see you doing the groundwork and we just need to bring you in, train you up so that you can run for these positions, right? You can be in certain C-suites and corporations. I really think that's a big, big, big thing that we have to focus on is like reaching out and making sure that these people who don't necessarily have the tools 
we don't necessarily have the resources to be in the White House or be on Capitol Hill, but making sure that we are reaching out to them saying, we have you, we have your back, we're going to help you out. Um, Daryl, weigh in. Um, I just want to double back um, about the youth training. So under Thomas Dorch and Manly Campbell, we've been hosting right before the corona outbreak. We was getting ready to host in September um, a Black You Vote youth training. Um, where we're going to have flowered different um, youth youth organizer organizers to diff, um, to Atlanta, where we're going to host different levels of training, and also Black Youth Vote been um, hosting local training within our own sister states, where we have branches of Black Youth Vote um, at. So Black Youth Vote has been doing our part, thanks to Manny Campbell Thomas, those to energize, motivate and um, organize black youth to get raised to own their political power. So we've been doing our po- um, part to motiv- um, motivate the youth and get ready to vote. So training has been very poor on our end. We've been doing our part and trying to do our part is like to really energize the youth to own their political power and get civilly engaged because it's more important now than ever. Got about six minutes left. I'm going to throw this out there and anybody can jump in. Uh, outside of your organizations, who is doing this well? Who can serve as a model uh, for people out there in terms of to activate, engage, uh, organize and mobilize black men or black people in general? Anybody can jump in. I think there are a number of people that are doing it exceptionally well. Thomas Dorch has been on the front lines with the 100 black men. Uh, we've heard his voice. He continues to lead, I think, Melanie Campbell, with the whole civic uh, participation, is doing an outstanding job. Um, there are all other organizations that have been on the front for quite some time. Urban League is still on the front. But I think what we have to do now is reach beyond ourselves and come together in a collective way and blend our voices to speak with a cogent, concise, and concrete message for what we are going to do. As you've already pointed out, Roland, uh, we can't wait uh, until things happen. We have to have an agenda in place and make the kind of specific requests, if not demands, to get the things that we need to continue to propel ourselves forward. I don't want, this is the first time I've used this concept, but I'm going to put it out there. In some instances, we're going to have to resegregate. We can't just try to be assimilated into the larger culture. But when segregation was at the fore, many of the things that we have lost. Thomas talked about the number of banks that we used to have, the number of businesses in our communities, and all of that has gone by the way. So now, as opposed to simply protesting, we have to put up our own solid infrastructure and foundation. We've got the census is going on. We need to make sure that we are counted in the census. So when this $625 billion is being divvied up, our communities are not overlooked. Our infrastructure in our communities have to be supported as well. So we have got to now not just look at individual organizations, and I think Reverend Yearwood talked about the silo effect, but we've got to get beyond ourselves and link up and ensure that we have the kind of presence and participation that we require to do what we need to do. Roland, Roland, I think uh, Hassan, organized labor is a prime example that the black community can look at that is organizing and pushing an agenda. They don't attack organized labor because we're weak. 
they attack us because we're strong. Because 100 days into the election, we do have a defined agenda. We do understand that social issues divide us, but economic issues unite us across genders, across race, across economic stratus. And that's why we are so effective in supporting candidates to support us and support our agenda. So as far as the black community is concerned, we need to look at organized labor and look at the structure that they had in place. My union has been around for 130 years and they're gonna be around for another 130 years. So we gotta make sure that this is not just a moment, this is a movement that lasts the test of time. Thank you. Desmond. And, and uh, let me just real quick too on this is that we have to look at how the structure was done even in the past. There's no one organization uh, that is the best in class. We have to come together. Even with Dr. King, everybody saw SCLC, but the NAACP, A. Philip Randolph, everybody took a piece of the pie and worked it, but they worked it collectively. We need our unions. In the coalition, we have unions. In the coalition, we have all of these different organizations. I'm fortunate in the 100 Black Men of America that we have men who come from all of the different fraternities, who come from so many different walks of life, and we take the best in class and incorporate that into what we do. And then we're, we don't have a problem in going outside of the, quote, membership to other communities because we have to understand we're in this together. And I caution all of us. Last Sunday, I had over 40 young leaders on a call with me. And what we have to do is not, uh, the young leaders need to know how to do it. We need to embrace the fact that they have their thoughts. And what I did with them was, talk with them about what their agenda was. And we talked with them as those elders in the village about having an end game. Yes, you demonstrate, but Dr. King and those always had a purpose and saying, okay, when you go in, but the amazing thing is they have agendas. The amazing thing is they're doing voter registrations at all of these demonstrations. So what we have to do is understand there's a time to lead, follow or get out of the way and understand that those elders in the village have a role those who are developing have a role and our young people have a role. And when we respect each other, then we will get things done. I meet on a regular basis with my hip hop community here in Atlanta because they've said we don't respect them and we don't engage them. But I can call any of them up because they know I respect and I simply say we need them. They can reach our younger people quicker than us and we have to make sure the right message is going there. So with all of that, my whole approach is we have to keep working the coalition is pulling us all together, and we have to be strong enough to say, I don't have to be the first on the list. I don't have to be out front. This is for the family, and we have to work together as a family, and that's the only way we're going to succeed, and embracing people like you, Roland, and others who are doing the things that you do. We got to know that we got soldiers out there working for us, and we got to support you and others. Desmond, you want to jump in? And this will be the final comment, Desmond. All right, is Desmond on mute? Desmond, 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 you on mute? Yes, I think this. Thank you so much. Look at the, look you, got, you got all that equipment over there. You on mute and set up for me because here's the deal: when you talk about coming together, one of the critical elements that we keep missing is that we're making these, we're trying to make these decisions and we're trying to create these agendas, but we're not engaging with the people that that are directly impacted by the policy. Right. Right now, here this whole country is talking about police brutality, right? But how many people, right, that's actually got a mic, 
right, that's actually talking on behalf, trying to create these policies are actually people who've been brutalized by the police, right? When you talk about how are we not letting people, returning citizens and formerly incarcerated people be the driving force, right, behind creating these criminal justice reform policies or reforming these uh, uh, police department policies or even state attorneys, the district attorneys. And so we cannot have a, a complete agenda. We cannot have a foolproof agenda until we are engaging and allowing the people who are mostly directly impacted by the issues that we want to talk about to let them lead, right, to let them actually set the, the, the trend or the standard. Because at the end of the day, it's the person that's experiencing the pain the, the most as have have the more most investment to actually get rid of that pain and to permanently get rid of it. Right. So we're not about taking those shortcuts. We know exactly what's wrong because we've been a part of that system. And it is time for even our leadership and, and our, our other brothers that's in position of influence and power to create that space for people like me and so many throughout the country to be able to walk in there. And that brother need to say, you know what? I know uh, uh, um, Joe and Reed, you might want to talk to me, but I got a brother in Louisiana. I got a brother in North Carolina that's been living this stuff and can speak to it much better than I can. That's who you need to talk to. And we shouldn't be so quick to run and talk to Joanne. We should be so quick to be at the table trying to set the policies. We need to let the people who are experiencing the pain the most be right there at that table and, and lead the way. All right. Gentlemen, I certainly appreciate it. Let me uh, go through again um, and want to thank uh, all of our panelists uh, for being here. Daryl Coles, uh, Demetrius Briscoe, Tommy Dorch, uh, Desmond Mead, Bishop Staccato Powell, uh, Reverend Lennox Yearwood, Hassan Solomon, as well as, uh, did I miss somebody? Did I miss somebody? I think I, did I get everybody? Apollo. Uh, Apollo. My bad, Apollo. Uh, my bad about that. So uh, uh, we certainly appreciate uh, all of you uh, being on the panel. Uh, and again, uh, Apollo's Baker. Gentlemen, thanks a bunch. Uh, Lon Walls, closing comment. Go. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's Melanie's there. I wanted to see if she wanted to close it out. Uh, oh, I, I, now I see her. Okay. So they had you up. Yeah. So. All right, uh, so who's closing, Lon or Melanie? Which one? Melanie's got it. It's Melanie's show. She got it. Uh, it's our show. Uh, thank you, Roland. Thank you uh, to my chairman, Tommy Dorch, and thank every last one of you all uh, for spending this time tonight. This is not the, the end. It's, it's, it's a, a reboot of us rebuilding our Black Male Initiative inside of the National Coalition. So these conversations are not just conversations. Uh, we will be having our Black Vote National Training, uh, whether it be virtual or uh, in person, depending on COVID. Uh, but also uh, having uh, next year uh, the uh, Black Men and Boys Day on Capitol Hill, where we are going to make sure that Black men are front and center presence. Like we have Black Women's Roundtable in March. We will have a day for Black Men and Boys. And just thank you all for all you're doing. And together we will bring about 
the real change we need for our communities. So oh. thank you for listening. Thank you, everybody. All right, folks, that is it for us. We certainly appreciate everybody uh, who joined us, who watched YouTube, Facebook, and Periscope. Don't forget to support Roland Martin Unfiltered uh, by joining our Brina Funk Fan Club. Folks, you can give, again, cash out, dollar sign RM Unfiltered. Also, paypal.me forward slash rmartinunfiltered. We also have Venmo. You can give via Venmo as well as if you want to use Square to simply use the credit card, go to rollermartinunfiltered.com. Venmo is venmo.com forward slash RM Unfiltered, where you can send a cashier's check uh, to... New Vision Media, Inc., uh, 1625 K Street, Northwest, Suite 400, Washington, D.C., 2006, Washington, D.C., 20006. All right, folks, I'll see you guys tomorrow right here on Roller Martin Unfiltered. Holla! Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.